I never worked for you. You worked for me. Every false intel I gave you, a rip in the iron curtain. Every piece of intel you gave me, a bullet in my effing gun. I want my life back. Hmm. Any guesses, Adam? I hear iron. I heard iron. Iron something that makes me think like Cold War. Um. Hmm. I I was thinking of some sort of action espionage espionage uh, <laughs> story. You know, maybe maybe the the. I, I want to say it was one of the Bourne films, but uh, I guess in that film he wasn't aware of his identity until later on. Oh, um, true. In the series, so I I don't think that's it. We on the right uh, track, Joey. You are in the right uh, idea of what kind of movies you're thinking about. Yes, it is, but it is not born. Okay. Perhaps yeah. like a, a Tom Clancy, maybe like a Jack Ryan kind of movie. Um, it's fairly, it's much newer, much newer than like the last. Gosh, four, recent. Well, it's like four years, maybe. It's pretty recent. Oh goodness, I'm stumped. I'm stumped too. Uh, Atomic Blonde. Oh, yeah, that's been way off my radar. Um, Charlize, no, Charlize Theron. <laughs> yes. Gotcha. Miss, Miss, Miss Theron. to season two episode eight of the average joe's movie clubcast this is justin and i'm joey and in this episode our featured movies are starring two guys we like quite a bit and i narrowed my choice down to uh, mr jake gyllenhaal and we are doing we're going to check him out uh in the overnight shift of the cd world of freelance video photography in 2014 the 2014 film nightcrawler and if you are a listener of the show, you'll know my partner here in crime, Joey. He's a hopeless romantic. And since his favorite actor pick was Ryan Gosling, we're going to go chat about him and Michelle Williams ripping out our hearts in that doomed romance, Blue Valentine. And just a heads up, we do discuss our full thoughts on these films. So if you have not seen one, just skip ahead if you want to avoid any spoilers. If you want to be a part of the movie club, make sure to hit subscribe, leave a comment. We would love to hear from you. And this is a super special episode. This is our second ever guest on the show. I'd like to introduce Adam Davey. How you doing, Adam? Doing well, Justin. And you? Oh, can't complain. Um, 
Now we're podcasting. Ask, who was the first guest on the show since I'm the second? Okay. Um, my good friend, um, Ben, that I went to college with, uh, he came on in the last season. So, um, okay. yeah. Does he have it's a letterbox of, profile? Uh, he's not so active. It's been a while. He's a new father. So, um, I hadn't heard a lot from him lately, but uh, yeah, I guess I definitely have to get back in touch with him. He's a librarian, so I'm um, at a school, so I'm sure COVID's probably hit him pretty hard. But um, yeah, that's a good reminder to sync back up with him. I, I like how you said that he went to school with you and that he was your friend. Like I don't know who he is, and we didn't both go to school with him. Well, technically, Thanks. I didn't meet I didn't meet him until the year after you left. So <laughs> I, I guess that's true, but like I knew him even beforehand so uh, yeah but alas poor ben i knew him well <laughs> <laughs> all right so i know adam from um we do a letterbox movie club together on um our beloved platform letterboxd uh i recall back a couple uh, about a about a year and a half ago you started commenting on my third man review and then you're like hey maybe we should check out some of these movies together maybe another orson wells and man, it's it's been a cool ride ever since then. We've done about 22 movies that we've um, kind of watched and um, both written reviews on, um, including the three police stories, uh, which was a good time checking those out right before I think they came on Criterion. And um, you pushed me to watch that eight-hour epic War and Peace, which I was was very rewarding to do so. And again, it came out on Criterion like right after we watched it, which is kind of bizarre. Uh, and then mostly, yeah, there you go. You want to you want on Criterion uh, get um, Adam and Justin to check out that movie. Um, but most recently, we've been doing uh, Best Picture winners, which has opened some interesting doors. Uh, um, probably the most interesting, I guess, Cimarron, which was in the first, I think, ten years of the Oscars. Um, so yeah, that's a that's an interesting western. Um, a lot of a lot of interesting comments about that on Letterboxd. <laughs> um, let's see here. Uh, all right, so, um, oh, that's right. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Edit this, okay. Um, us starting our movie club came not too long after uh, me and Joey started podcasting. So um, I had always kind of had in the back of my mind that I'd like to have you on, and but that's kind of a strange thing to ask. Like, hey, you want to come on a podcast? <laughs> Especially when we never met each other. We just kind of write back and forth online. But I got the perfect opportunity when you got the really exciting opportunity to be on a really big podcast big podcast you want to tell us about that sure so back in I believe it was june uh gracewood from letterbox reached out to me and uh, she said that she had uh, checked out my black life on film list which is basically a collection of films that uh, feature uh, black actors, actresses, and black stories. And uh, it was something that's been a labor of love for me for, yeah, I would say since I first joined Letterboxd because I was looking for lists similar to the one that I built on the site, mm -hmm. but you can, you, you can never find them. You know, you always find, let's say around Black History Month, you find, okay, these are the top 10 films that you should watch. Uh, you know, to if you're looking, for, if you want to learn about, you know, this specific moment in history or this black actor, this black actress. But there wasn't something that was just so comprehensive that you could find some, pretty much whatever you wanted. You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. because, you know, not everyone wants to, you know, watch uh, a slave epic. You know what I mean? Uh, sure. Not everyone sure. wants to see the same old uh, <laughs> films like uh, I'm trying to think of some 
some films off the top of my head, like Guess Who's Coming to Dinner or sure. uh, Loving Basketball or a few of the others that always get thrown out when we talk about you know these the, the you know these specific films. So mm-hmm. I put that list together, and uh, it was kind of uh, it kind of went hand in hand with uh, you know both Gemma's appreciation of the list because as you know and uh you know joey i'm sure you know as well like there's a lot of work that goes into it and then you know you have the 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 contributions of others as well and it becomes you know it's both an individual and a collective effort so you know she reached out to me said she wanted to discuss that along with uh two other films uh do the right thing and uh ava duvernay's uh 13th uh, because of okay. those films were kind of rocketing like up the up the popularity list on Letterbox due to oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, the social unrest and the protests that have been taking place, um, uh, it, that are still taking place actually, but they were really sparked by the uh, murder of George Floyd. So we had a discussion about that. We discussed the films, the uh, the list, and a host of other issues, and it was really uh, just a, a great experience overall. Oh, awesome! Yeah, that's a pretty popular list, isn't it? Doesn't it have like a over a thousand likes, doesn't it? Is it even more yeah, than that? Yeah, I mean, we're getting up there. I mean, I can tell you this. When I, when she first reached out to me, I think I was sitting at around 899 okay. likes. And right now, uh, it's sitting at 3,083. Oh, nice. Congratulations. So it was, yeah, it was, it was pretty insane. Uh, Growth how there. How quickly, uh, you know, the, the popularity of the list, uh, I guess, increased because of uh, because of the uh, exposure you know through, through the podcast and it was something that I was very happy about oh, for um, sure. you know it also got a you know bump in you know number of folks you know following me which is which is always good uh, because mm-hmm. you know we write stuff uh, you know all the time and you know you're not sure who's going to read it, uh, your work but you always know you, you kind of know what works you know what I mean you know you know that a film like Avengers Endgame is always going to get more, uh, you know, more promotion and more likes than, say, you know, a film that I recently watched for the second time, um, uh, Marinada's uh, Tony Erdman. Uh, so, you, uh, you know, for me, I, that that exposure was big because I, I enjoy engaging with others on the site. I enjoy writing reviews and, you know, hearing other people's opinions. And it's nice to have a bigger platform now and to know that, you know, a film like how green was my valley or like uh cimarone will would actually get some some coverage now you know what i mean because you actually have more people who are actually going to see it so uh it's been nothing but good things have, have come up uh from it and uh i do consider that uh podcast a test run for the big show which is uh what's taking place tonight so uh i just, just want to <laughs> let you know i'm ready for whatever comes my way we were flattered <laughs> All right, so we are, yeah, we're super glad to have you. Um, interested to hear your perspective on these uh, two pretty intense movies with uh, Nightcrawler and um, Blue Valentine coming up. Um, but yeah, we kind of like to kick, um, I guess we kind of skipped over our uh, what's going on with us, Joey. Anything going on with you before we jump into it, or we should just talk movies? Uh, nothing really, still just the same that it has been, really, uh, same status quo working. Um, watching some movies, playing some video games. Um, can't really think of anything else that's really like changed in my status quo at, at this point. Um, so like uh, I went and saw an old friend yesterday that I hadn't seen in a while. So that was fun. Got to, you know, 
got to hang out and uh, you know went and grabbed some grabbed some food and, and whatnot. But you know, for the most part, it's the same the same status quo, just selling video games. So. <laughs> I uh, I guess the one thing that happened for me is I uh, I turned thirty five so yay my birthday hey happy birthday when's your birthday it was August twenty fifth okay. and um, took the opportunity to put a uh, thousand piece puzzle together with the family and the only reason I took part is because it was movie related it was a bunch of uh, great movies from the seventies and eighties and I tell you it was a blast to like my wife like she took care of like the whole perimeter. And like I would like group different sections. I lo- I would like have the Caddyshack the Caddyshack section and the Die Hard section, and we had um, Coming to America in there. And like it was fun to hear the kids be like, "Oh, well, I'm almost done with Blade Runner." <laughs> so um, it's cool to expose them to stuff like that. And uh, and uh, they're not actually watching movies, but they're you know they're using their brains or whatever. So yeah, that 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 um, picture you shared of that was was very awesome looking. It was very sick. Yeah, we put that together. Yeah, pretty much a 24-hour project. But um, all right, let's get into some movie talk. So we like to start things off with our movie night pick'em game. And I picked these two movies specifically based on a conversation I had recently with Adam on Letterboxd. And Adam, Joey. I don't think Joey's seen either of these, so this might just be him kind of picking whatever sounds most interesting. Adam, would you rather re-watch... Killing of a Sacred Deer or The Lobster as your next movie? Oh, absolutely. The Lobster. Uh, if okay. you've seen my favorite films list, mm-hmm. uh, you'll know that there are about 29 films, I believe, and The Lobster is one of those films. Uh, it is a perfect movie in my uh, eyes that kind of captures uh, not so much like the absurdity of relationships, but the ways in which our sometimes our, our best and worst tendencies are magnified through our mm. desire to like get you know what I mean acceptance uh, find that significant mm-hmm. other you know be accepted by them and even uh, and, and you know on the same token you know you have you know within the film you have this other group of individuals who are uh, very much want to you know be by themselves and kind of live live their own lives, and they kind of reject uh, the idea of coupling <laughs> as 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 it's defined within the film. And you know, it's just as absurd uh, because there it's there there are these hard and fast rules that you know, you know are are very much a part of our everyday lives in terms of how people view relationships and the way that Yorgos uses it um, uses those ideas and then just kind of turns it on his head with the idea of the hotel and then you being turned into a particular animal if you can't find a mate. It's just, there's just so much about that film. It's just, uh, it's, it's hilarious. It's, I don't, I don't know. I don't think depressing is the word because the film it's, I know this is sound weird, but it brings me great joy whenever I watch (laughs) it. But, uh, yeah, the the lob, I I would take the lobster, uh, any day of the week. How many times have you seen lobster? Ooh, it's, um, so that's, that's a good, actually a good question when it comes to my favorite films like the films i rate five stars i usually wait a very long time uh, between rewatches so you know i i will say that aside from seven samurai which i've it's probably in you know the double digits oh thank you Joey. uh <laughs> uh i've probably seen the lobster probably three or four times so you know that's probably like once every two years like i typically i'll watch a film if i really love it 
I want to wait, you know, like I said, a year or two so that every single memory, every single feeling that I have about that film is, is almost erased so that I can go into it fresh again. Uh, because it, it's very rare that, that, you know, you're able to do so. But, and you have, you know, some folks who see a film immediately and then, you know, they want to go see it the next day. And uh, for me, it's just like, I, I almost need like a bit of a, I almost need to forget, uh, you know, a, about how much I loved it in order to like appreciate it, you know, once again. Nicely said. Um, I think you're shooting in the dark, Joey, but um, you want to give a stab at which one you would prefer over these two? Why did you do this to me, Justin? <laughs> so I have, I, Joey, are you not a, is, are you not a Yorgos Lanthimos fan? I've not seen any of his movies. It's not about this gentleman. Oh. Okay. It is about. That's right. You don't um, like that one guy. Yeah. He's I do not, not like a... Colin Farrell at oh, all. Wow. Oh, okay. So what is it about Colin Farrell? Uh, I, I'm going to be particularly blunt. I think he's a pretty shit actor. Mm. Um, like, like not saying that I could do any better because I, I couldn't, I couldn't act myself out of a wet paper bag, but I'm not getting paid to do it. So, um, however, based off of, um, you, you made the lobster sound really, really good. Um, and this is a movie I've actually heard of is the lobster. The other movie I've not heard of. Um, but sitting here like reading the lobster and, um, I do like Nicole Kidman I would, I would probably pick Killing of a Sacred Deer. Like, they actually both seem very interesting. Um, mm -hmm. Having never really not know anything about either one of them, that would probably be the one that I would that I would pick. And he stars in both of them. So, um, and he has a totally different acting style in those because his, because Yorgos's dialogue is just like otherworldly with how strange and quirky it is. So it'd be it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts on that. I personally would go with Killing of the Sacred Deer just because. I came into that movie expecting to like really love it because I heard all of this stuff about, oh, you know, it looks very much like a Kubrick film. I'm like, ooh, I can't wait to see that. But then like the ending happens and it's a strange emotion it gives you where it's really kind of silly, but at the same time, it's like the most tragic thing you've ever seen. And you're like, how do I feel about this? So I'd, I'd love to wrap my mind around it again, but I, I love to watch all his movies again. Um, I think I, I would return have... to Dogtooth last though. <laughs> I do have one of his movies, like, oddly enough, on my, like, to watch list, and that's the favorite. Um, yeah. It's a good start. So, yeah. All right. And we totally jumped over um, talking about uh, maybe your taste in movies a little bit, Adam. Um, where would you say, like, your um, the first time you thought of yourself as maybe a cinephile? Like, um, could you describe that and maybe some of your, the, your favorite kinds of movies? Absolutely. So, in... I had to pick a film that it started with. It's, it's going to sound really weird. It was probably The Last Samurai, which I think was... Uh, oh, Tom Cruise. Yeah, with Tom Cruise. And uh, I, like I said, I have this fascination with Japan. I definitely want to travel there one day. And, you know, the idea of a samurai... <laughs> Birds of a feather with Joey. Really appeal to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah we're, off on a, we're off on a good track, Joey. Uh, or a good start, Joey. Uh, so, yeah, the, that got me interested in other samurai films. So, you know, you go, go to Google, type in samurai films, and so the film comes up, Seven Samurai. So I'm like, oh, wow, okay, let me check that out. And uh, this was back in, I want to say, 20, oh, excuse me, 2006, 2007. Uh, and so there were, you know, video stores were still a thing. 
and they were still uh, allowing the VHS tapes. <laughs> yeah, and so I was able to watch Seven Samurai on uh, VHS, which is something I, I probably would would never do now, considering I have uh, the uh, Criterion Blu-ray. But I yeah, I heard I heard those and... uh, subtitles back then were pretty awful with uh, the white lettering oh, yeah. on the white um, black and white um, picture. Oh yeah, don't get me started on that. We should definitely oh. uh, subtitles should definitely be in yellow. And was uh, it was it two VHS tapes? Uh, or... Oh, that's a good question. I believe it was. I believe. So it was. I remember like Titanic coming out when I was like twelve or thirteen, and it being two VHS tapes. I can only imagine Seven Samurai was, you know, two, three, four. <laughs> no, 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 no. You're, you're, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think it was too, because the film is about three hours and twenty minutes. So yeah, uh, yeah that sounds about right. Uh, so yeah, like I said, I watched that film, and from there, I think that. Uh, two things happened. Uh, number one, uh, it definitely fueled my taste for, uh, you know, to, you know, to seek out other films that really became like, you know, the film that kind of, uh, got me into, I would say the art house and, uh, the criterion collection, because, you know, as I was you know, searching online to, you know, for information about the film, you come across, uh, Criterion Collection, and from there, I think, like I said, it was, this was around 2008, and uh, and on. I started watching all of the films in the Criterion Collection uh, because of Seventh Samurai. Right? And I got to about, uh, let me see if I can find that spreadsheet. I'll come back to it if I need to. But I think I got to about 500 or 600 films or so. And from there, there was a change because you know all of us grow up on you know, watching films through like the Hollywood lens because, you know, that's what's available in, in the multiplexes. And, you know, you also have to go with what's, uh, <laughs> what is what appeals to and the films that are designed for children. And, you know, Hollywood, I would say, is the best at producing those types of features. And I think what the, what really sparked my love for film was seeing other films like The Seven Samurai. Uh, and, and many others that are that are on the Criterion Collection. There's so many that I don't even think I'm. A, I would take up you know an hour and a half just you know talking to you about it. So I don't want to. I don't want to do that. But it definitely gave me a different sense of what you could do with a movie. And you know you, when you think of you know some of the you know new wave films like Breathless. You know it, I don't think I've ever seen you know that type of editing, you know, the jump cuts and, and the voiceovers and stuff like that, that, you know, in your traditional Hollywood films. And then you have, uh, you know, their point being, there are just so many others. And so, you know, my, I think my taste, my palate was, was expanded. My, uh, my endurance, because, you know, you start to dive into the Criterion uh, collection and you start to uh, get acquainted with, you know, the slow cinema of like a, someone like a Tarkovsky. So you build up that cinematic endurance. And from there, it kind of just allows you to embrace um, some different aspects of filmmaking because Hollywood, uh, I would say many Hollywood features are about, you know, keeping your attention, moving things from one, one, um, one plot point to the next. And there are times, and you've probably noticed this, Justin, in, certain, in, in a lot of films that we watched and a lot of films that, you know, you've probably watched uh, on, your own, on your own through the Criterion channel, that there are times in, certain, in some of those films where it almost seems like nothing's happening, but everything is yeah. happening. And yeah, like I said, that me 
having a great introdu introductory film like A Seventh Samurai kind of opened me up to other films and having uh, such a great uh, list of films to choose from from the Criterion uh, collection allowed me to kind of like uh, just expand uh, my idea of what a film could be. And I, I think that if I had to describe myself um, as a cinephile today, I would say I'm someone who appreciates more of the just regular slice of life type films with a bit of absurdity. And like I said, Tony Erdman is, is one of those films. Uh, but you know, there, there, you know, there are some others like, um, you know, I'll have to come back. We may have to come back to it, but, uh, like I said, that's just, I think that's just where it developed. And, uh, I, I'm enjoying, like I said, one of the things I enjoy about Letterboxd is that you're able to engage with others because, you know, you, you watch some of these films and it often seems like, there are there aren't a lot of the people who you can re, who you can really relate to. You know what I mean? Because so much Hollywood uh, takes up so much of the um, space. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? When it comes to you know what I mean the popular films, both in, both in terms of what gets mentioned in popular media and in terms of the box office. So that's where everyone's attention goes. But it's nice to have you know I mean these these forums where we can discuss these in the, in greater detail. Yeah, for sure. I think for me, um, that art house film that I first saw that really opened up my palette was um, when I first saw Persona from Bergman. That just was like, whoa, I mean, what what is this? It's so engaging. Um, and then thinking mm -hmm. of Tarkovsky, um, I remember the first time watching Ivan's Childhood um, and thinking it was a little slow, but I was I was into it. And then whenever me and Joey looked at it, I was just like, wow, this is such a visual feast that even though these moments are slow, it's just so much cool stuff to look at. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's interesting to hear different people's impressions on film based on what their experience is, for sure. Um, Joey, uh, any criterion that kind of um, shook the way you kind of look at movies? I mean, it was Hidden Fortress, probably, because that, that was my, like, big introduction to Criterion like for years I owned one and just didn't you know didn't know what it was so that was, was kind of my introduction um it was my introduction to Criterion it was my introduction to Kurosawa um and that was just like two years ago um two and a half years ago yeah it was yeah. in like spring of 2018 and then it just kind of it kind of went from there I kind of probably went a little bit different direction from you guys because then I went to like Lady Snowblood and like um Lone Wolf and Cub um, so I went a, I went a, a little bit slightly different direction. Um, but of course I'm trying to just anything that influenced Kill Bill, I was like, give it, I want it. So it was kind of <laughs> where I went. So, um, but like, I think the first thing that, you know, I was like, oh, a movie can be more than just, you know, entertainment. What well, was probably American Beauty. And like, I think we, we talked about that, um, before somewhere along the way, cause you know, Jake gave me, like, I had to watch that for some freshman class in college and like Jake let me borrow that. And I was just like, what, what the hell is this movie? Um, so, but, and awesome. like in the last, the last couple of years, like living with my roommate and like finding different like boutique sites and just getting my hands on all sorts of different movies that I had never heard of. Um, it's definitely been, uh, definitely a change, um, in, you know, how I like perceive movies and like what I want to watch. Like, obviously I'm going to watch dumb action movies because that's what I grew up on. But, um, guilty pleasure is never bad. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you, so you don't even believe in calling them guilty pleasures, do you, Joey? 
No, I don't even. <laughs> I'm not ashamed. Why do I have to feel guilty about it? It's just I like what I like. Everyone should feel that way. So there you go. Whether it's t- your TV shows, your movies, your video games, like whatever, you shouldn't have to feel guilty about it. Now we, you know, we spend so much time talking about, like you know, the films we love. But have there been films within the collection that you didn't enjoy? Because as much as the collection has influenced my taste in films, there there have also been films that I've watched and I said, you know what, I'm glad I checked that spine number off, you know, the list. Mm-hmm. But I just didn't care for this, and it's definitely influenced. The types of films that I that I now seek out, because I know, okay, I don't want to go in this direction. You know, this director, this style. Uh, I don't want to say a genre because I'm pretty much I can go for any genre. But you know, this this just isn't for me. Do you? Do either of you have a, a film like that? You know, within the collection that stands out. Um, I would go. My first instinct would say Jules and Jim. That was a very acclaimed. Uh, didn't Truffaut do that one? Mm-hmm. Um, okay. I just, watching that, I was just like, man, a, a love triangle is not for me. <laughs> I'm just not getting into these characters whatsoever. Um, that stands out. I remember watching Rules of the Game for the first time and just being like, this feels like homework. I just want it to end. It's kind of kind of funny, but let's let, let, it, let it please end. Um, so yeah, you occasionally run into those and Shoot, then I watched like a Gene Dillman, and I mean, theoretically, that should be agonizing, but something about that movie is just totally hypnotizing. Oh, hypnotizing, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. That's a great word, great way to put it. So, um, um, what about you, Joey? Yeah, so Justin and I have watched uh, quite a few, actually, um, for the podcast, um, him trying to, you know, broaden my, my horizons from just, oh, Let's watch someone get sliced up or chopped up or blown up or, you know, what have you. Um, and some of them have uh, some of them have struck really well, and I've uh, rated them really well, and some of them have, have not. So y'all, y'all were talking about Ivan's Childhood. Um, yeah, that one didn't sit super swell with me. Like, it's a really good movie, but like, it, just, it just didn't do anything for me. Um, same thing with, like, Army, uh, Army of Shadows. Mm, and it's, mm. you know, that was challenging for me as well. Yeah, um, and then this one's probably gonna sting Justin a little bit. Like, like it was a good movie, but like Mulholland Drive, like it just, just like the first half of the movie when they were like, oh yeah, we're like, it was almost like they were buddy cops or whatever, and they were like investigating stuff, and then it was like, oh by the way, now we're gonna make you take an acid trip. Like that just, uh, you got to see um, it a second time, man. The way Lynch I, constructs that is just. Yeah, it's the more you know about it, the more you appreciate it. Um, was uh, but I think yeah, I think like the early, like my two least favorite movies we've watched haven't been on the collection, so that's probably yeah, we're probably good with that. So <laughs> more salt in the wound. <laughs> All uh, right. No, no, um, I think the the first movie we watched was also in the collection, but oh, Ashes and Diamonds, right? Yeah, yeah, we didn't. I don't think we knew that at the time. Or at least I didn't when I picked it. Okay. Um, and Def- it was just... Definitely doesn't seem it based on the cover, which was a big part of our conversation on that one. Yeah, it definitely looked like it was like faux Terminator cover. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, that was, was uh, I, I go another like a uh, foreign World War Two movie, um, which is very it was very all of those are very different than you know like American World War Two movies. 
and uh, you know because these are also more focused on I guess the the people than the war, and you know they're focused on like the aftermath and stuff, which you know is a, a very good concept. It just it just didn't work. Like I remember I was talking about that pretty um, pretty heavily about like maybe if we had watched them when they had first came out or ashes and diamonds, like if we had watched them when they had came out and it was more of a, like in that time period kind of thing or something. Yeah. Appreciate the historical context. Yeah. Gotcha. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's keep the show moving forward. We're going to get into our good, the bad and the ugly. All right, and so this segment, we are talking about three movies that we've labeled in quirky ways. And so um, I don't have the – Adam, do you mind telling us what um, – did you kind of give a, your three um, category uh, – three movies kind of quirky titles for us to pick from? Yeah, I did. So uh, okay. that's – can we just uh, can I just use phrase the good, the bad, and the ugly just for yeah? We can just go with that. That, that works. Yeah. So because the first one and it's a really good film and and it mines because it, it kind of falls into that uh, you know slice of life genre that I uh, previously mentioned was mm-hmm. uh, it's a film that uh, came out in 2017. It's called On the Seventh Day, and the director is Jim McKay. And the film is centered around a group of uh, undocumented immigrants living in, uh, or Mexican immigrants living in New York City. And it focuses particularly on one um, Mexican immigrant who works as a uh, deliveryman for this uh, restaurant in the community in which he lives. And, uh, you know, in his free time, he and his buddies get together and they play in this local soccer league within, you know, within the city. And uh, everything is going as well as it can for someone who's undocumented in this country, because, you know, as you know, you know, they face, uh, you know, their, their own sets of challenges that, you know, we can't really imagine, you know what I mean, until you, you know, you hear their stories, uh, which is why I appreciated this film. Uh, but, you know, f- uh, for a time being, everything is going well, uh, and especially off, you know, outside of his work life, because he and his buddies, like I said, they play uh, play in this soccer, this league, and they're doing really well, and they make it to the championship game. And but he receives notice that he's going to have to work on that day, and so he's scrambling at the last minute to kind of find a replacement and trying to balance, you know, these two aspects of his life, which uh, are both very important in their own ways. Be, uh, you know, obviously, you know, his occupation is important because it's one way that he, you know, he has to provide, he's able to provide for himself. He also, you know, within the film, he also has a wife and a young daughter and he, he's trying to bring them over to the States as well. But there's also uh, a sense that outside of this, this, this brief moment in time where he's able to kind of, you know, feel free on the pitch <clears throat> that there isn't much available for him within America. And, uh, you know, as, you know, as in, you would, it makes sense when you think about, you know, his life as an undocumented immigrant, because uh, most of the institutions that, you know, we would probably take for granted are almost luxuries to these folks. And in many, in many ways, they're off limits. 
And so the the film is about, like I said, this battle between, uh, you know, once he finds out that he has to make this decision because he really wants to play on this play in this game, uh, but he also has to think about his future. And the film is like this becomes this this delicate like balancing act of you know the will he won't he will he won't he, and uh, I don't want to spoil anything because. Uh, the once we do get to the point in the film where he, you know, he's playing in this championship game, uh, it's it's very interesting. Like some of the uh, <laughs> uh, things that he does in order to uh, kind of make himself available to his uh, to his team. But uh, I, I don't want to uh, I don't want to spoil it. I, I think that it's worth watching and kind of you know pondering on afterwards because it, it's definitely a film that speaks to kind of you know the the current climate and. Not so much, you know, the fear, but like the sense of promise that America probably seems to still offer to some people until they actually get here <laughs> and they're faced with like the actual reality, you know what I mean, of living in it. So that it's it's a, a great film. I highly recommend it, and uh, I hope that you uh, hope that you guys get a chance to check it out. Cool. Yeah, definitely sparked my interest there. Um, okay, so Joey's categories. Um, Let's go with your woo, Joey. Oh, all right. So that is going to be from director John Woo. Ah. Um, <laughs> yes, not not Ric Flair, but John John Woo. Um, and that is one we talked about me wanting to watch for a long time. It is from okay. the aforementioned uh, Criterion Collection, uh, spine number eight. That's the killer. Mm. Um, yes. Boy, if you want to watch a movie. And it's just a let's go glorious action movie. That's that's chef kiss action movie right there. Reloading <laughs> guns? Nah, we don't we don't we don't effing care. We're just gonna we're just gonna freaking go. We're just gonna shoot stuff, blow stuff up. It doesn't really matter. And it's just it's it, yeah, it just doesn't matter. It's shot really well because it's it's John Woo. There's doves everywhere because again it's John Woo. Um, Absolutely. and like, there's a plot, um, you know, the killer, um, Chow Young Fat, uh, wants to not be a killer anymore. And then there's a girl and yeah, and he has to fight the, the Yakuza, not the Yakuza. Cause that's Japan. And this is China of uh, the mafia, whatever they were called. I forget at this point, but, um, yeah. It's just balls to the wall, action, guns, stuff getting shot. Basically what I was talking about, like I like to watch. So don't be surprised. I don't think anybody is. <laughs> now, uh, do you know um, if that film influenced uh, the Chad Stahelski, uh, the uh, director of John Wick? Because I know that there, there, it definitely feels like there's some similarities between those two films. And it feels oh, like yeah. there's an influence of sorts. I mean, I definitely could, I definitely could see that because, like, you know, he's the the assassin, but he's, you know, he's already out, and then he has to come back in, and he's just crazy good with the gun. Like, yeah, I could see that for sure. Mm -hmm. Also, I freaking love John Wick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, Although, it's a good film. I enjoy. They 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 definitely reloaded some, but you know, it's like Keanu's like really good with a gun in real life. So. Mm. Yeah, they reloaded more in like one scene than I think they did in the entire movie, The Killer. <laughs> Still need to get to that. I've only seen Hard Boiled, and Hard Boiled blew me away. So should definitely uh, get to Killer as soon as I can. All right, uh, Joey. I was, hmm? 
honestly hoping uh, that I was going to get to Hardboiled before the before the podcast, but uh, so I could I could have both of them lined up for this, but that didn't happen. Um, Such is life. <laughs> All right, what should I talk about, Joey? You should talk about your sci-fi obsession. Okay, so I got back to seeing Close Encounters of the Third Kind for the first time in a long, long time, and I was watching it, and I'm just like, there's something about this film, and I don't know what it is, it's not really grabbing me, but what is it? And it's really the fact that um, when I think about the pillars of sci-fi, I want to say like Kubrick, 2001 Space Odyssey, all is about is all about like human knowledge progression. And then you have Tarkovsky's Solaris, which is all about like memory and love. And then you have um, Spielberg kind of throwing his hat in the ring too. And I feel that he was kind of in that influence going after a film that was all about obsession, human obsession, especially with the unknown. It's a much more, I mean, it's Spielberg, so it's going to be a much more blockbustery, grounded film. But at the same time, you know, it has that artful touch. I mean, I don't think I ever went into that movie thinking, like, the aliens were going to kill people. So I think um, I never got the full, like, mystery effect that probably that movie probably could have. But, um, yeah, dun, 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 dun. Um, yeah. Oh, Communication is the other one. And it's interesting thinking of communication in sci-fi films. Um, Arrival that came out from uh, Denis Villeneuve. His was all about what communication and time. So he almost hit through his hat in the ring in this whole like um, art, artsy sci-fi realm as well. Um, so yeah, I really enjoyed re revisiting um, uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Um, it's interesting. I've heard a lot of podcasts or conversations about it, and a lot of people don't like um, the main character because he ends up uh, like abandoning his family. Um, so that's that can rub people the wrong way, but. Um, yeah, it was an interesting one to revisit with the kids. Um, such great atmosphere, John Williams score. Um, yeah, and it's it's all about this like UFO obsession. And um, yeah, it's a, it's a really remarkable film, uh, that Close Encounters of the Third Kind. All right, Adam, let's hear about your ugly. Mm, the ugly. Okay, I'm gonna throw a film out here that I feel is somewhat misunderstood. Okay. And. I'm going to completely butcher this director's name, but it's, uh, I believe his name is Vaclav Marhul. Marhul. Uh, he directed a film in 2019 called The Painted Bird. Okay. I'm not sure if it's on your watch list, but uh, have you seen... I've heard uh, recommendations. Like, I, I, I praised Come and See recently, and a lot of people are like, well, if you like Come and See, you got to see The Painted Bird. <laughs> oh, yeah, and there's, a, there's an awesome connection between the two films that once you see the painted bird, you're really going to appreciate it's, it's, it's a very dark film, but you know, when this particular scene happened in this, um, the, these individuals, these particular individuals showed up, uh, it just, it kind of blew me away and kind of brought everything, uh, back to, um, or, you know, it kind of made a, a, a connection between the two films, but, um, it's about a young, young boy, young Jewish boy, uh, living in, uh, I think it's Poland, uh, during World War II. And uh, early on in the film, he's abandoned and by his, uh, by his family. And the film is shot in like these vignettes as he goes, as he's, you know, roams the countryside and ends up um, in the care of one individual 
you know, to the next. And he suffers abuse, I mean, basically from start to finish. And mm. I think that's where the come and see narrative comes in because, you know, you have these two individuals. Uh, I, I, I would say that the, the, the difference between the two films, uh, Come and See, is about someone who's very gung-ho and very interested in, in the war effort and, and defending uh, his homeland. Uh, and in this film, uh, the, uh, the young boy is more of an innocent bystander. Uh, but the, the film is, it's really like, it, it just kind of like bludgeons you with like the brutality, you know, just with the brutality of war, uh, you know, because of what he faces throughout the film. And uh, uh, if I could, I, I say it's, it's somewhat misunderstood because I was reading a lot of, uh, of the letterbox reviews and it seems like a lot of the folks are solely focusing on the brutality of the film. And I think like the, 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 the broader message is getting lost because, you know, this is a film that's based on a novel by Jersey Kaczynski, who also wrote uh, the novel Being There, which was uh, the Peter Sellers film. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, this is someone, you know, Kaczynski was someone who grew up in Poland uh, and uh, experienced the war and wrote about, um, you know, partially wrote about his experiences and, and, and placed them within that novel. And I think that a lot of times when people watch these films, especially, you know, war films with these gruesome images, yeah. you know, they're turned off by them, not realizing that this was actually someone's reality. You know what I mean? Sure. And I, I, and so, you know, I, I had that in my mind as I'm watching this and, you know, the, it doesn't make the images, uh, hard, you know, easier to digest, but, uh, you know, with that in mind, I was able to see uh, a bit of the, like the bigger picture of what the director was kind of getting at. But, uh, when I say it was ugly, I, I mean, man, I'm telling you, it was ugly. And, uh, I don't want to make comparisons between this film and come and see, but you should definitely watch both. Uh, especially because, like I said, there's a connection between the two that kind of brings things, um, uh, uh, you know, f like full circle in a way that I, I just really appreciate it. And I think, you know, once you watch it, you'll know what I'm talking about and we can discuss it, in, you know, then in greater detail. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, I'm a big come and see fan. So, yeah, you got definitely wet my palate on that one. Um, that sounds very bizarre, but seeing how probably mm -hmm. grim and, um, you know, uh, macabre it probably is but um mm -hmm. yeah i'm yeah really enticed to see that all right um adam do you see joey's um categories there in the notes by chance yeah don't let me pull that up yeah you can take the next pick <laughs> all right so let's go with uh actually it's uh not a polish movie wow what I mean, a transition <laughs> winning transition Okay, so not a Polish movie. Um, it's gonna it's gonna harken back to like two different episodes here uh, uh, that we've done, um, mainly because the name of this movie is Red, but it's not three colors red, um, because we we on our movies that we didn't like the first time we did three colors trilogy because of Justin, and obviously one of those is red, and then when we did our Criterion haul. I bought the Three Colors trilogy, and Justin freaked out that uh, he recommended an art house European movie, and uh, I didn't hate it, and like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> reviewed it into the ground. So yeah, no, this is a uh, red 
from where did it go? From 2010, the the Bruce Willis, mm-hmm. Morgan Freeman, John Malkovich, name somebody they're in it movie. Um, yeah. So it's just a big. By the way, that's pretty much all I've watched since the last um, the last podcast is big dumb action movies. Um, some were just better than others. Um, and this was this was one of the ones that was better. It's just a big dumb action movie, spies, espionage. It also had um, Nancy Botwin, and that's not her real name, but that's what she'll always be because of weeds. Um, and it had John Malkovich doing John Malkovich things, and that's like the second or third movie this year that I've watched John Malkovich in where he, I know it's like, man, I haven't really watched any John Malkovich movies. And now I've watched three this year and he's almost been the best part of every single one of them. Um, I've been wanting so, to recommend being John Malkovich for the show for the longest time. And it's just like, do it, do it now. But, uh, gotta, gotta find the right time. <laughs> I mean, I've had interest in that movie just because I've heard it so good. I like, I understand that it's kind of like an out there kind of movie, but like John Malkovich is, so good like that uh that random uh vin diesel movie that i watched that you always say with such vitriol in your voice um he was easily the best part easily um i I can't say that he might be the best part in burn after reading because all of that was good but uh so yeah no he was just like the, the the crazy like conspiracy conspiracy Oh, that chopper's out to get us, and you know this person's gonna get us, and like you, you know, that person in this movie. And it was it was a great fun time. I think the dumbest thing is that um, they're getting chased, and Bruce Willis whips the police car around, opens the door, steps out, and just steps out and starts firing the gun. And I'm like, what? <laughs> what? Like, okay, it's an action movie, but that might be dumber than the time you tried to knock a jet out of the air with an 18-wheeler and die hard four. Like, what? I just reviewed anyway. that tonight. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, die hard four? I mean, Timmy the yep. only fan. That's, that's the way to go. Um, but, yeah, no, that was, uh, it was, it was fun. It was good. I mean, it, obviously, you know, not winning Oscars or nothing, but it was, uh, it was a fun time. I'm going to go with my quote-unquote bad film, and okay. I, I feel... I, I do want to get you both of your opinions on this because uh, for whatever reason, this film just didn't stick with me. And um, okay. that film is Serpico, the uh, Pacino okay. film from 73. Uh, I am a sucker for, you know, corrupt cop films and, you know, folks trying to, uh, I guess, kind of bring down the house and, and, you know, reform the system from the inside. You know, I think uh, mm-hmm. when I think of, you know, these types of films, you know, one other film that I, uh, would compare it to that I think is really done well is um, the uh, uh, Michael Mann's. The, I think it's Michael Mann's The Insider. Okay. With uh, Russell Crowe. Have you seen that? I haven't seen it, but I know what you're talking okay, about. Okay, but uh, it's just it's about a um, tobacco executive who kind of blows the whistle on uh, on some of the corrupt dealings of his uh, of his corporate partners. But and and it has like a similar vibe to this one. But I think in my eyes, where the film went wrong was it spent they spent way too much time focusing on Serpico's life or Frank Serpico's life outside of the NYPD. And, you know, he was he had this uh, you know, I, I can't really call him a hippie, but it's more of like a bohemian type vibe to him. And 
I think it was supposed to be used as a contrast of sorts to the very buttoned uh, up uh, persona of the NYPD. And, you know, that's like a, like, a, that like a Gene Hackman from French Connection kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Okay. But uh, for whatever reason, it just didn't stick with me. And I think that it's because the film spent so much time, you know, placing that, you know, uh, you know, like I said, that bohemian versus, you know, the very, you know, polished and buttoned up, con you know, that, that contrast between the two that it they didn't spend as much time, in my opinion, on the actual corruption, you know, within the system and, and some of the reforms that he was trying to make and the way in which it just com it completely, or the system, I should say, completely uh, broke his will. Because I think that's the most fascinating thing about the film. And it really doesn't, they really don't dive uh, into it as much. And so uh, Serpico, it was just, it was a really, really big disappointment because it's one of those films that's just like, I would think it's ingrained in our popular culture. And when you hear that term, you kind of know what it means. And, you know, I've, I've heard about the film. I heard the, you know, the name being, you know, thrown around from, you know, for years. And, you know, I finally got around to watching it. And, you know, at the end, I was just kind of like, hmm, okay. Uh, you know, I'll yeah. go. Uh, I'll go check out something else. So uh, it was um, maybe uh, you know a rewatch is in order. And uh, I have a buddy who is a huge Sidney uh, Lumet fan um, and loves all of his work. So I probably need to tap him uh, and, and get his perspective on things the next time I watch this because it's it's always good when you have someone who's like. Uh, extremely passionate about a filmmaker or a film and they yeah. can kind of shed some insight for you know provide you with some insight that can maybe you know help shape your opinion and and, and change it um in, in in the future yeah that's been long on my uh, radar and need to need to get to it but it's interesting to hear your your insight on that one for sure been on mine for a very long time as well um yeah, yeah you, you should oh, go ahead no, no, no. I was just going to say, yeah, it's, I, I definitely want to hear what the both of you have to say about it, because like I said, my opinion is not set in stone. It's, I, I just think that, you know, the tone of the film, it just caught me off guard because you expect, you know, a cop who's coming in trying to reform the system, you expect him to, you expect it to be a little more gritty, I guess, than what this film actually was. And I, I think that's what it actually threw me off. And so I'm interested to, you know, I, hear your take uh, both of your takes on it well you know once you get around to watching it awesome all right the next one i'm going to do is um a little messy for a masterpiece i recently watched uh, die hard with a vengeance um again i watched that was my first die hard movie uh really loved it back then it was funny i used to talk it up so much and then i remember talking to my cousin he's just like well have you seen the first die hard you got to watch the first die hard <laughs> um and i would say i mean while the first die hard is the best i the third die hard is not far behind it all. Um, you open up with that Summer in the City um, song as you really set up this hot day, hot, hot day in New York, and then boom, you know, this bomb goes off, perfectly setting up what's going on here. And then you got John McClane, he gets thrown out, um, and he gets confronted by Samuel L. Jackson, and I thought it was really interesting, like how Sam Jackson brings this racial element into it. Or he's like, "All right, these guys are about to kill you because what you're doing on the street here. So we need to get you in my store right away." And I liked how he stayed consistent with this this racial um, kind of um, 
drive in his character because he says he's just like man if you get killed that means we're gonna have more cops on this street and that's bad for business so i want none of it so they have brilliant chemistry all throughout this movie um jeremy irons i mean such a presence on the phone being this simon says character throwing all these riddles at him um john's mclean's coming at it from a very like you know i just want to get the task done but samuel jackson comes from more like puzzle solving analytical view so they work this perfect chemistry um, throughout the whole thing. And then, and it's all, you know, it's a misdirection. Like he just, Simon just wants to get all the cops away from the bank so he can have this huge heist. And that's just all brilliantly done. Um, you got the Johnny Comes Walking Home, uh, Marching Home theme playing whenever they're doing the heist. Now this movie gets a little sloppy in like the third act towards the beginning because I mean, the puzzles go on and like they're splitting these different directions and like their misleads. And it's funny because um, this movie is really dear to my heart because some of the parts of it were shot in Charleston, South Carolina. Like there's a part where like John McClane shoots out of like the, this, this tunnel system. And that's actually a shot of like the um, interstate over by where I live. So I remember specifically when they shut the interstate down whenever they were shooting that. And then a little bit later, um, they're up on the old Cooper River Bridge whenever they jump on to the um, the big ship but yeah there's a period in this like geographically this movie makes no sense at this point because you're like you have like this interstate scene and then all of a sudden they're in this car chase but it looks like they're in the mountains and then they're suddenly on a bridge in new york again and it's just like whoa what's going on um so it gets a little disheveled towards the end but man it, it still hits a sweet spot in terms of um, my love my nostalgia for this movie um first time i ever saw john mcclain and i mean it delivers the action goods and it's really, really, it's, it's almost masterfully put together through the majority of it. So, Die Hard 3. What's your name? Zeus. Zeus. Like the god of thunder? Shove a lightning bolt up your ass? Zeus. <laughs> Just watch that earlier this year, not, not even nice. that long ago. It was, yeah, that's a great, great one. It really struck me because... Um, Whenever we were watching it, I was watching it with my son, and um, he's a big Incredibles fan, and Sandman Jackson is in um, The Incredibles as the Frozo character, and there's a scene mm -hmm. in Die Hard 3 where there's this trigger-happy cop, and he's just like, you know, you put that phone down right now, and he's just like, I have to answer the phone. And if you think to Incredibles, there's the same scene in Incredibles where he's like, I have to take a drink. It's just like, whoa, they, they, they copied the scene? That, that's crazy. <laughs> so, from a kid's movie to Die Hard. There you go. Um, talking about things like kind of being copied, uh, the scene from the beginning of the Dark Knight where they roll out, they they rob the bank and they roll out with all the buses. It always reminded me of when they were rolling out with all of the like the dump trucks full of gold. Like I don't know if it's the exact same. Like oh, they took it. pretty darn close. Now that I think about yeah. it, yeah, yeah. Mm. Obviously, they didn't do quite the big misdirection as you know he just robbed the bank, but you know, they roll out and he just got all. A caravan of things so it just always kind of struck me as like this i've seen this before oh it's die hard three <laughs> so awesome all right one more from you joey we got uh 80s power couple right yes power couple um <laughs> yeah so uh that's gonna be uh, some, uh we're just gonna go back to the 80s because we already we already did uh the killer so we're gonna go to the same year actually back to 1989 uh gonna get a little uh, Kurt Russell and uh, Sylvester Stallone team up in Tango and Cash okay. um yeah so um 
You got these two different, basically, cops. They're, they're both cops in L.A. Um, got Sly, and he's like the prim and proper. Uh, he's a, like a detective. He's made a bunch of investment deals, and he's, you know, he dresses real nice, wears like a lot of like Prada. Maybe not Prada specifically, but you get the idea. And then you've got uh, Kurt Russell's like the grimy, dirty. He wears like, he's like, I paid $9 for this shirt. And then like $9 is expensive to him for a shirt. Um but there's this like crime lord and he's got each half of LA split up under two smaller crime lords and they're both just kind of creating him, uh, giving him a lot of grief basically. And um, he ends up framing both of them for the murder of a uh, FBI agent or something. And so they have like escape prison by um, like basically, I don't want not hang gliding, but zip lining uh, off of an electrical wire. And it's like, that's, that doesn't seem right. But, you know, basically just another big dumb action movie, but with Kurt and Sly. So, you know, they this is the 80s. This is like the height, you know, Kurt and Sly's power here. So it, uh, it, it, it makes it work. Um, you got to the end, you get like ridiculous amounts of explosions. I'm pretty sure like, a young Michael Bay's watching this, and you know, all of a sudden his voice drops about four octaves. Um, <laughs> young, uh, young oh, Terry Thatcher's in this movie. Um, so before she was Lois Lane, so you know that was that was pretty nice. Um, not a great movie, but it was again pretty much the theme of all the movies that I picked. Was it was really fun, really fun to watch. Um, and I like cop movies. Definitely not an analytical cop movie by any means. It was, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, we're just going to go blow everything to fudge up. And, uh, yeah, sure, it'll work out in the end. <laughs> you seen that one, Adam? After the shooting. Yes, most definitely. Wait, what's... <laughs> For sure. So. Still haven't seen that one. How about you, Adam? I have not seen it yet, but I am familiar uh, like with the film, and I should... I would definitely watch it based on uh, on Joey's uh, uh, synopsis. Yeah. I, I think there, there's got to be something you could double bill it with too, just to uh, bring it, you know, you know kind of pair it, just so you have something to like contrast it with. Oh, contrast, uh, interesting. Oh, oh yeah, no. See, like this is where I would be like, I'm pairing it with like Roadhouse or Cobra or something. Or something. <laughs> okay, okay. I like it a lot. Yes, yes. See, I liked it more than Cobra, but you know, Cobra. Like, I watched Cobra last year and was kind of, because, you know, you always see, you know, I've always seen, the, like, the cover, and he's got the dark aviators, and I was just like, dude, this movie's going to be sick. He looks dope. And and he, he had, like, this, uh, you know, like, souped-up car in Cobra, and, like, and it, I, I don't know. It wasn't bad. It just, I don't know. It just didn't do as much for me. But I also, like, watched, what was that Chuck Norris movie? Like, I watched, uh, like, a Chuck Norris movie, like, the day before, maybe the same day, and then, like, Chuck Norris was in a Bronco that got buried, and he drove it out of the hole, and I'm just like, <laughs> all right, I am in 80s action movie, like, hell right now, you know, it was, it was a ridiculous couple of days, but anyway, back to uh, what we're here all right, for, uh, which is not yeah. 80s action movies, apparently. Got one more movie, <laughs> uh, Sweet and Sour, and that's in reference to Pickles, because I went and checked out that American Pickle movie that's uh, new. Um, a lot of mediocre reviews on Letterboxd, which I was kind of disappointed by, but it's been a long time since I've seen um, Seth Rogen, right? Um, yeah, so I wanted to check out a comedy with him, and I, I really enjoyed it. Um, it's it's a ridiculous part, premise. You got this old world uh, Europe 
um, Jewish guy who you know wants a better life for him and his wife. So they um, immigrate to uh, the United States, and he ends up falling into some pickle brine, and and he wakes up a hundred years, you know, fresh, ready to go. Doesn't make any sense, but uh, they totally acknowledge that at the beginning of the movie. He actually gets. Um, He's gets he's he's hired as like an exterminator at this pickle factory, and it's basically the the rats rebelling against him, which pushes him into the pickle brine. So it almost feels like the beginning of a Batman character, maybe the Picklemeister or something. Um, but then it gets it goes in an interesting direction. So he he's revived a hundred years later, and he meets up with his great great grandson, who's an app developer. And so it's all about him learning about like you know he's essentially a. Uh, um, a fish out of pickled brine water, um, you know, figuring out the, you know, what it, what it's like to live in uh, 2020. Um, so yeah, so you have that 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 element where he's kind of figuring things out. It, the core of the film's all about kind of like how in modern society we have a lot of people have lost grasp with like our religious upbringing. Like in the old world, people would be very commemorative of um, you know honoring. Your um, your family and paying tribute to them at their their gravesite, where the his great grandson basically has no interest in that. Um, he's you know he's ha he misses his family, but at the same time, like he doesn't want to dwell on that, and he's trying to make a business for himself. Um, there's commentary on Twitter in there because you know being from a hundred years ago, he says some pretty non um, politically correct things, and so that gets him in trouble. <laughs> but um, it's so remarkable because like they get at odds with each other, and so he's like. The, uh, the guy from the old world says he's going to set out for himself and, uh, you know, do his own thing. So he wants to make a pickle business. And he goes to like a Whole Foods and he's just like, a buck, a buck, a cucumber? No, 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 no. And so he goes like around to the back and he pulls some cucumbers and some salt out of a dumpster and makes like his own little dumpster pickle stand. And then like the hipsters come and they're like, oh, is it all, you know, all natural? He's like, oh, as natural as it can be. And then it becomes this big fad with doing things the old ways, but with a modern spin. Um, so I, I thought it was a lot of fun. Um, yeah, it has a, a little bit of heart to it. I say it's a little convoluted with the friction between the, um, the, the guy from the past and his, uh, great grandson. They, they developed this like feud throughout, which is just like, you know, it seemed a little bit hammed up just for drama's sake, you know, to make it come full circle at the end. But, um, American Pickle, I enjoyed it. Yeah, that actually sounds like really entertaining. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So, oh, I um, mm -hmm. I was going to ask you, uh, I guess, what are your thoughts on Seth Rogen as an actor? Because he's definitely someone who who has matured in a way. I mean, he, you know, he just, you know, he just came out with the uh, thing. Was it Long Shot with Charlize Theron that came out? Yeah, there? I, think I haven't seen that yet. But yeah, he used but, to uh, always. I'll go ahead. No, no, no. I was just going to say, you know, he's was he and. Uh, Michael Sarah and Jonah Hill, you know, they were all within that. It was that that raunchy teen mm -hmm. adult comedy Pothead. phase, and like mm -hmm. I said, they've Judd, all Judd Apatow movies. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and they've all made their own little transitions mm -hmm. into film adulthood in their own distinct ways. And uh, so I was just wondering, I, I guess was yeah, especially did, did Jonah Hill see... working with Scorsese yeah, and yeah. stuff. Exactly, exactly. Even directing so I, his I was own movies. Ask if you saw a, a progression, like oh, with for sure. American Pickle, um, and not just his acting, but just like I guess in in, in the in in the in the themes of like of the film overall. 
I'm glad you asked that. That does remind me of the fact that, I mean, it is him playing both roles. And the only difference is the fact that one of them, he is a beard. But I mean, the special effects with him talking to himself in a room are just absolutely seamless and very commendable that he comes off as these two very, very different people. But the the whole movie is just playing off of himself. I'm sure they probably dress somebody up in a green suit to like him act off of. But I mean, Mm -hmm. just thinking about how they actually they, they probably filmed each scene twice in order to get him. Um, you know, delivering both roles, which is pretty impressive when you think about it. So, yeah, I think he has a, I mean, it's probably, it's probably unfortunate that COVID's going on right now. And, you know, he didn't get to release this in the, um, the movies to see, you know, what kind of draw he would actually get, you know, doing a solo movie like this. So that's kind of unfortunate, but yeah, hopefully he keeps doing smart comedies like this. I would definitely consider this a smart comedy. Yeah, it really sounds very interesting. Um, definitely like to check that one out. All right, now let's finally get to uh, what we're all here for, the featured movies of this episode, um, featuring some of our favorite actors. So, like always, we like to chat a little bit about the theme of each episode. So let's just kind of run down, um, go around the table, run down our list of um, maybe some of our favorite actors and, um, you know, some of the favorite movies they're in. And Adam, you mind kicking us off with um, favorite actor talk? Sure. So when I think of a favorite actor or actress... I'm someone who is always drawn to uh, men and women who have more of a, I guess, a regular vibe about them. You know, I'm not... Down to earth? uh, Yeah, they're down to earth. And someone who, I guess, isn't, uh, you know, your typical movie star. Although, Although I do have one movie star on my list. And for good reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when I think of my favorite actors, I think of people, you know, folks like Julianne Moore. Uh, okay. mm-hmm. And uh, when I think of Julianne Moore, and like I said, just to keep things in line with, you know, what I what I just said about, you know, the regular aspects of, 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 of these people. Uh, I like seeing someone who looks like they could be just as comfortable in, say, a boardroom as they would in, like, you know, a dive bar in, in the middle of nowhere. And, mm-hmm. you know, she and uh, some other actors like, uh, I would say, like, Amy Adams, and I, I really like Juliette Lewis. They're actresses who just have a wide range just based on their physical presence. You know what I mean? Not, not even considering their acting abilities. And, uh, like I said, that's just their, I guess if you can just call it their look and the way they carry themselves kind of lends, works well for them. And it lends to great performances uh, or lends itself to great performances because they don't have to hide themselves behind, you know what I mean, a pound of makeup or these dramatic costumes. Like they just seem to fit so well into their environments. Uh, And it's, it's just really tough to explain. But, you know, when I see you know, an Amy Adams, like you see someone who, uh, who you feel is, can be extremely competent, competent in the middle of, you know, I guess whatever, I I can't even call it a spaceship, but, uh, you know, whatever she was standing in when she was in arrival, you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Trying to interpret the language that, you know, the, the messages that those aliens were giving her. But, you know, she also seems like someone who would be great as, I think she was a, I think she was a stay at, like stay home wife in, uh, Julie, was it Julie and Julia? Yeah, she's um, yeah. 
uh, amateur blogger, um, yeah, and, kind of in the dating circle. Yeah, I gotcha. Yeah, exactly. So that's that, that's kind of what I'm getting at. And, and like I said, that when I see or when I saw her in, in you know in both films, I never felt like she. It never seemed like she was out of place, you know, in either environment. And that's something that, like I said, I really appreciate. And a lot of it has to do with their ability to convince you that, you know, you know, through their performance. But like I said, it also just has to do with, you know what I mean? You know, certain things that they can't control, such as, you know what I mean? They're, they're just overall makeup. Um, mm-hmm. I, I have to give a shout out, like I said, to, to some movies, to a few movie stars, though. Uh, one of them being Brad Pitt. Oh, yeah. uh, Brad Pitt has always been one of my favorite actors because, uh, I guess, in, in addition to having you know just the, the movie star persona, he's someone who's always been very mindful about the roles that he's taken on. And I read an interview, uh, maybe you know a couple months ago, where he was talking about you know how he was on the set. I think he was on the set, or he had just finished wrapping up, uh, or just wrapped up Troy, uh, and. He kind of had one of those um, moments with himself, I guess, where he just basically asked himself, like, what am I doing here? And why am I filming this? Uh, and it was it, it seemed like it was a bit of a wake up call because, you know, I think he was it, this. I think this was around the time that he was still uh, married to Angelina Jolie and uh, still uh I guess even to this day, very much a family man. And uh, I guess he said he ended up saying that he had his kids in mind, and also he was also thinking about his reputation. And I think you'll you'll probably notice if you go to his uh, filmography, you'll notice a trend, uh, like a, a, in just a major change in the types of roles that he was accepting uh, from then on. And that's something that I've already always appreciated because he's always been a good actor. Um, in my eyes, but I do enjoy uh, actors, and you know, uh, you know, some of his friends like Clooney and you know Ben Affleck and a few others have have made some very conscious decisions about the roles they take too. Uh, but uh, one of the things I really enjoy is folks who recognize their star power, but also recognize like the power that film has, uh, and and the power that they have as actors to kind of get certain projects off the ground. And so you think if you think of you know a, a Brad Pitt. I'm just going to throw uh, a film out here. Uh, when you think of a film like, let's say, uh, it's, it's oh crap, it's got the uh, really long title. Uh, it's I think it's the assassination of Jesse James oh. by the cop Robert Ford. Right. Uh, I mean, how does I I just I just don't see a film like that getting off the ground without a Brad Pitt. And I think that that was part, uh, you know, him making that conscious decision to be a little bit more mindful about what he stars in. Uh, really helped us uh, get a film like that, you know, into production and into the um, and, and and out into the world. And the same goes for uh, I think both films are by the director Andrew Dominic. So he starred in his uh, Dominic's follow-up film, Killing Them Softly, as well. Right. And it's another great film that, um, like I said, we don't have time to dive into. But uh, like I said, I, I I do appreciate the fact that. Uh, there are certain actors out there who recognize their star power and use it in a great way. And like I said, I would contrast that with someone like Will Smith, who I, I love dearly, but he just won't let go of the idea that he always needs to be the good guy and on the right side of history. Right. If that makes sense. That's... You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and he has good reason. He, he the reasons that he's he's given. Because he turned for, down Django, right? 
Yeah, he, I think he did. Yeah, and Jamie Foxx took it. And in, in, I mean, that was that was a great call by by Jamie to pick up that take that role. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just look at some of the roles that he's taken and some of the the lack of success that he's had over the past few years with some of these films. And I have mm-hmm. to attribute it to the fact that he won't allow himself to be uh, something other than what I guess the the public views him as, which is mm-hmm. the good guy and, and and the hero. And Brad Pitt has definitely right. taken on some roles that have definitely cast him as uh, someone who you you know you wouldn't want to cross paths with. Right. Great picks, Joey. You want to run down a few? Yeah, I've got I've, I've got a few. Um, obviously, um, Ryan Gosling because you know, we picked for the um, <laughs> but but um specifically. Um, I have a, a, another one that's Emma Stone. So I like both of them separately, but um, the two of them together um, is fantastic. I watched all three of the movies they've done together. I own all three of them. We've done one of their movies on the podcast. Um, I'm a big fan of Timothy Oliphant um, from Justified, which, you know, it's a TV show, but um, he's, he's in a movie. I, I don't even, you don't even have to like tell me anything about the movie. You're like the movie starring Timothy Oliphant. Like I'm, I'm already there. <laughs> uh, um, uh, Kristen Bell, Mila Kunis. Um, I've, I think they've been in three movies together and I've watched all of them and two of them were nowhere near as good as forgetting Sarah Marshall, but, um, <laughs> watched all of them. Uh, Sam Jackson. Um, well, Tarantino fanboy and, uh, I mean, Sam Jackson, I mean, He's just great. I don't even think I need to discuss. Hold Sam on to your Jackson. butts. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, and yeah, I don't even need to discuss Sam Jackson. He's Sam Jackson. I think that speaks for itself. Um, Scarlett Johansson, uh, Ben Affleck, and like how much Ben Affleck has like had a change from you know like seeing him be like Hold McNeil to be in something like The Town and as a director and. You know, mm-hmm. everything else is in between. Or Batman. Like, I thought he was great as Batman. Like, the Batman movie that he was in was garbage. He was great as Batman. Um, mm. He was also in Geely, which, mm, well. <laughs> 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 he's had a lot of ups and downs. But, you know, he's. I think he's a really good actor. Uh, Leo, I, I also think that kind of speaks for itself. And then um, I've got a couple that have uh, I've been just introduced to in the last couple of years. Um, they're a little bit older. They're... Um, you know, it's Audrey Hepburn, uh, Bogey, and Mifune, and I think again, that's all just going to speak for themselves. Um, so, right. But every every time I see one of their movies, it's just I'm blown away by like how much just star power that they have and command the screen. And then, like, we watched Sabrina for an episode, and like every scene with Bogey or Audrey was just like mystifying like captivating and then you put them both on the screen together and it was just like okay this this and and both of those two just is when you think of like a hollywood star that's that's what it is so like that's that's what i have no, that's a great uh, I, I think that's a great point and then I, I there's just one more person i have to point out which is uh robert redford and, uh, you know, he, he came, obviously he came a little bit after uh, Humphrey Bogart and Audrey Hepburn, but he's definitely someone who, I, I think, uh, Joey, based on what you were saying, there's someone who, they also have a command of the screen. And there's someone who, there are individuals who seem to command your attention. Is that what, is that what you're kind of getting yeah. at? Yeah, especially like those last three specifically. Um, mm-hmm. 
Um, and, and Sam Jackson, too, to a degree. Like, you see Sam Jackson, and it's like, he's going to command the screen. Um, it's kind of the same thing with Morgan Freeman. Morgan more mm-hmm. of his voice, but, like, they demand that you pay attention to them. Like, you just, you like, even in, like, Kill Bill, or it's Kill Bill 2, when Sam Jackson's, like, just the piano player for a split second, you're like, that's Sam Jackson. Like, for just <laughs> half a second. And you're like, that's Sam Jackson. And that's so, the cool like, thing yeah. about Morgan Freeman is he does that, but he does it with charm. Instead of like you know overbearingness, which is so remarkable about Morgan Freeman, except for in Wanted, where he was trying to be Sam Jackson. Oh, oh really? <laughs> Shoot this motherfucker! Like so, yeah. I mean, who's doing his best Sam Jackson impersonation? Yes. <laughs> I would say my theme for my actors is I like very transformative actors, ones that just completely. Um, yeah, it's, it's hard to even tell that they're there. I mean, you got Joaquin Phoenix. Um, I remember when I first saw him in um, the, uh, Walk the Line, I was just really enjoyed his performance. I thought he was great in Joker. Um, Jamie Foxx, um, you'll see a little trend here. I like um, musical biopics. So I, I first remember Jamie Foxx from Ray. Uh, go ahead, Joey. You look like you want to. So you left off the best Joaquin role. Gladiator. No. <laughs> Ah. Anyway, continue along. I, was, I wasn't quite on the walking tra- <laughs> uh, train then. Um, yeah, Jamie Foxx and uh, Ray and uh, Django. Awesome, awesome. Um, Francis McDormand. I mean, Fargo is one of my favorite movies. She's awesome in Three Billboards. As um, She's almost like this like John Wayne-esque kind of character in Three Billboards. And then Fargo, I mean, she just totally turns into that Minnesota nice persona. Um, Jack Nicholson. Goodness. Know. I need to see more of his 70s work. Um, I mean, you got him in The Shining. You got him in um, Being the Joker. I'm, gosh, there's a Joker trend going on now. Um, Sam Jackson. I'll tell you, the, the performance from Sam Jackson that really blew me away recently was when I saw him in Django. And just he is just a whole different person, um, you know, playing the head of house in that movie. And that just... Gosh, it's staggering what he can do. Um, Steve Buscemi. Um, I love these quirky um, character actors as well, like Steve Buscemi, uh, William Defoe, Christopher Walken. They had these little weird quirks to them. Um, I've been really blown away by a couple of Nicole Kidman um, performances, like in Eyes Wide Shut. She's in Dogville. Um, very, very powerful actress. Um, and I have to throw a bone to Bruce Willis. Now, gosh... So I was sitting there at my in-laws house the other day and Cop Out was on and I'm just sitting there and the sound's off and I'm just looking at Bruce Willis's face and Cop Out and I'm like, you don't want to be there at all. What, what happened to you, Bruce Willis? Why don't you want to, why don't you want to be a good actor anymore? So uh, I think Bruce Willis used to be a good actor, but um, yeah, I need to probably re- rewatch. I didn't mind Cop Out the first time. But um, yeah, it, you should it just seemed... you should stop. There's nothing about wanting to rewatch Cop Out, and that's from like <laughs> Kevin Smith didn't want to be there. It's got Morgan Morgan, uh, what? Uh, not Morgan Freeman, Tracy Morgan. There we Tracy, go. Yeah. yeah, no, no, just mm, that's a bad. That's a no. That's a no for me, dog. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's get into our first uh, feature movie of the night. Um, we are talking about Nightcrawler from 2014. Allegedly, Jake Gyllenhaal is in this movie. Um, but like I said, I love transformative roles, and it's almost like he's not there. Um, the film was directed by Dan Gilroy. The synopsis on IMDb. 
When Lewis Bloom, a con man desperate for work, muscles his way into the L.A. crime journalism game, he blurs the line between observer and participant to become the star of his own story. I, I'm hit and miss with IMD synopsises, but man, that, that one really hits the nail on the head when it comes to this movie. Now, before we dive into it too hard, this one has a real personal connection with me because I actually studied journalism in college. So I actually worked for a TV station for about seven years, being a, a producer, um, an editor, a master controller. And so, yeah, all the stuff I'm seeing in this movie definitely hits home of what actually it is like to be in broadcast journalism. And so, yeah, there's a lot of stuff in here that really hit home. Um, during a period of time when I was a news producer, I did work the overnight shift. And so... I would come in touch with these, um, they're called stringers, where they would, they're freelance guys, they listen to the police scanner, they hear about like a robbery, and they go and they film the crime scene or whatever, and then they go up to the um, the stations and they're like, hey, you know, we want to sell you what we got. Definitely not going for numbers is crazy in this movie. I mean, what, in that one scene, you're just like, man, I want to sell this, this video for $10,000. It's like, what? <laughs> for one story? But, um, I mean, it's LA, and in a pretty perspective, I mean, Charleston is medium market, like 100, and LA is like number two. Um, number one is New York. Um, you're you're by Pittsburgh, right, Adam? Correct. Okay, I think they're like 25. Yeah, 24 is Pittsburgh. So, and that's all based on how many viewers they have, and however many viewers you have is how much you can sell for your commercial space, and that's what that's all based off of. So, um, so what are your, some of you guys' opening impressions of a uh, Nightcrawler? Had you seen it before? Um, it's 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 a pretty weighty film. I mean that movie, boy, I was blown away by this movie. Just, I, I mean, I won't go into like the whole thing immediately, but just um, Jake Gyllenhaal playing creepy is he does it really well. Um, I think it's he, he lost weight. Uh, he lost weight, so I think his face is more like. His jaw is like more pronounced, so he, he almost looks like a different person, person compared to like some of his more babyface roles. Um, and like I said in my review, uh, Louis Bloom, more like Louis Brazen, he does some very brazen things throughout this movie. Where I'm just like, normally things I would normally say in like a traditional horror movie because it's definitely like a suspense thriller. Um, most of the time it was just white people. Like this is some white people shit. Um, why are you doing just basically being dumb as fuck? Um, because he definitely uh, did some dumb things, very dumb things. Um, but you know, hey, it worked out for him in the end, I guess. But like, whoa, hmm. boy, howdy. Um, interesting. Well, uh, initial um, impressions, I, Adam. I love the idea. Uh, number one, I love the fact that you know. The majority of this film was shot at night, uh, especially because it takes place in Los Angeles, uh, you know, quote unquote, city of stars. And but this is <clears throat> a different type of Hollywood. And the bright lights that we see here, uh, they're they're definitely the bad kind. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, Lou is someone who actually uh, makes reference to that near the end of the film uh, when he's being grilled by that detective. And, you know, he just, he has this look, he's not even, he's not even phased by anything that she has to say, because she's almost trying to um, get him to, I guess, incriminate himself. And 
you know, we, we come to realize that he is uh, very much a step ahead of everyone else that he comes in contact with, including this detective. And uh, yeah, I guess before he leaves the uh, police station, he ends up saying, you know, it's like I always say, you know, something along the lines of, you know, if, you know, you run into me or something like that, you know, you're probably had, it's probably the worst day of your life. And mm. I think the film like does a great job of showing like this different side of Hollywood uh, and this different side of LA that we're, that we're used to seeing because, you know, it's a very photogenic city full of very mm -hmm. photogenic people. And this film has none of it. And the stars quote unquote of the show, uh, the people that, you know, Lou ends up uh, videotaping and, and encountering during his nights and night, uh, during his period of, of night crawling, mm -hmm. uh, they definitely don't want to be the star mm -hmm. in whatever he's putting on. And uh, it's just, I, I, I think that oh. it's, it, it I just love the way that it, it, it contrasts, uh, or Dan, I love the way that Dan Gilroy contrasts the, uh, the city that he lives in and, and even the industry. And maybe we can mm -hmm. get into this in a little bit, uh, the industry that he works in, because there's definitely some manipulation uh, taking place by Lou and by many others uh, within the film in order to uh, produce a desired effect, even mm -hmm. though, you know, at the same time, they're toying around with uh, people's lives and reputations. Yeah, seeing as that's an interesting point about L.A. being the city of, you know, the movies. Um, mm -hmm. and these people, you know, involved with an accident or a carjacking and him putting the, his camera up in their face during their worst possible moment. I think there's even a part where mm -hmm. like he gets into somebody's, um, face who's like doing a, a breathalyzer test, you know, even, even that simple kind of thing. Um, so that's a very interesting point of, you know, contrasting LA being known for movie stars with this news game that he's entered himself in. And it's really, really interesting towards the end of the film where, you know, they are getting live footage of this car chase, almost like a movie, but with the intent of mm. putting it on the evening news. So I definitely see that, um, that element at play um, when you mention, um, you know, the Hollywood aspect of it. I love how the movie uh, opens up with, you know, really beautiful shots of L.A. Um, to really mm -hmm. bring us into this setting. Um, this setting. Um, one of the things I didn't notice about it the first time that I did this time is the socioeconomic aspect of the news. And um, I mean, I think mm -hmm. they bring it up at one point, like him and his partner are listening to the police scanner and they meant they hear something about, I think some Mexicans dying. And he's just like, nope, pass on that. But then they hear about mm -hmm. something going on, you know, in a very well, well-to-do neighborhood. And he's working with the news director about building this story around crime creeping up into the suburbs. And that's what interests mm -hmm. them because those wealthy viewers are who's, you know, pumping money into the stations and that's what they're after. So, yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, Nina, uh, who's played by Renee Russo, she's the, um, I guess, uh, producer of sorts with it. Overnight news, news director. That, uh, overnight news director. Mm -hmm. uh, she makes, uh, you know, reference to that as well, because Lou comes to her and he has, you know, a variety of footage. And he, I just remember her, or I just remember him saying that he had a particular piece of footage. I can't remember remember what it was. And she just kind of scoffs at him like like we don't, we don't want that. And uh, mm -hmm. I just think like like I said it goes back to the way in which like people think like the news in in one way it is real life, but at the same time it's heavily manufactured. 
mm -hmm. uh, you know, to sure. produce empathy, to produce outrage. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Nina is someone who I, I think Lou uh, pinpoints as someone who is um, hanging on by a thread. Uh, you know, within the film, within as far as her current role, he kind of said, he, he, I think he makes a point, you know, to say like, you know, I've done some research on you. I found out you've only worked at most of your places for two years and you're coming up on your second year. So I know that you need me. And he kind of uses this, this, you know, during the, the negotiation piece. Oh, yeah. And so he places her in a position and, and pretty much a no-win position, which then forces her to have to take on, like I said, these, uh, and, and cover like these extreme acts of violence, like I said, that are then heavily manipulated to produce a, a certain effect. But mm -hmm. it's only like you said for you know a certain group of individuals, and it, it definitely makes you think a little bit more deeply about the way in which you know the information that we're fed by you know our preferred news channels, whether or not even if you agree with what's being shared, if it's if it's even the full story. You know what I mean? Or if it's even something that you should be uh, taking in because uh, there's always, it always seems like there's an ulterior motive. And, and this film is definitely something that makes you question uh, <laughs> the coverage that, you know what I mean, that you see uh, when you, you know, when you turn on your, your, your local news station. Yeah, when it comes to there, I think that I definitely, I, I think Bill Paxton's characters say, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. And that is 100% mm -hmm. true. For any station around the whole country, um, mm -hmm. Joey, I remember you started off as a journalism major, broadcasting, right? What was um, was there ever? Did you ever have a passion to get into this um, this biz? I mean, I was yeah, I was in mass comm, but like I, I went into mass comm because I, I wanted to be like Stuart Scott. That's that's mm -hmm. who I wanted to be. Um, He's a reporter, so, right? He was on Sports Center. Yeah, he was. A oh, sports, okay. Yeah, he was a sportscaster. Um, oh, I and did you just now. want to cover sports? Pretty much, yeah. That's that's the main thing that I wanted to do was sports casting, like, um, because coming out like, out of high school, like I had wanted to play sports, and you know, like due due to uh, like things with like in my family, like I wasn't able to, um, and you know, like like you know, being an adult now, like I probably one thousand percent could have, I just you know didn't know how to like apply it uh, and apply myself correctly to make that happen. But you know, that's in the past now. But um, so it was one of those things like I watched Sports Center like all the time. So, you know, like Stuart Scott, Rich Eisen, um, Linda Cohn, like all of those people, that's like, that's like who I like looked up to. Um, and, and I was like, you know, that job is really cool. They get to sit around and like watch sports all the time and they get to analyze it. And like, I could, I felt like, you know, like if I was playing like NCAA football or Griffey, like 64 or any of that stuff, like I was announcing the game, you know, calling out highlights and that kind of stuff do, during all of that, you know, people, would watch sports with me and I like, would get annoyed because, you know, like they would just, you know, mention one thing and I would go down like a rabbit hole of like sports analyst and like that kind of stuff. So that's really what I wanted to do back then. Um, I couldn't do that now because I don't like, I don't know like half the players in any sports like at all anymore. Um, but that was, that was why I was in mass comp. Um, not one of for, the, uh, go ahead. Oh, I just wanted to say, um, one of the big moments that really stood out for me earlier on is when he Bloom first um, sells his footage and he sees it pop up on the TV and that like kind of the glimmer of his eyes of seeing, you know, something he shot, you know, you know, being shown to hundreds of thousands of people. And I remember having that was 
the most satisfying thing about being a news producer was the fact that I has I was writing this content that was being delivered. And there was a few times where we got exclusives on stories. I remember there was a um, a serial. Um, he was like holding up uh, different convenience stores, and we got a we got a police tip that he was um, he had kind of um, boarded himself up in a motel room, and we got the exclusive on that, and we ran you know breaking news coverage all morning, and the other stations were just left in our dust, and I mean. The, the high that puts you on, I, it's, it's hard to describe. Um, that happened a few times. I had the opposite effect um, sometimes uh, too. But um, ever since I left the biz about four years ago, I, I barely watch the news, I'll be honest. Um, how about you guys? Do you guys watch much uh, news, whether it be like the 24-hour cycle or more your local stuff? I do not. Um, I find myself... Uh, reading about current events uh, more so than, you know, watching, uh, you know, say like a CNN or like my local news, uh-huh. uh, simply because I realize that, and you know, this, you know, this film kind of touches on it too, that you don't get the full picture. And I, I, I don't think, uh, I think that certain, you know, if you think about, you know, certain events that are that we're dealing with right now as a nation in terms of the pandemic, in terms of the racial protest and uh, many, you know, a a lot of the other uh, things that are going on within the world. There's only so much uh, knowledge that you can gain from some of these these segments that attempt to cover these world events that have more than likely been you know, brewing and, and bubbling underneath the surface for years, mm-hmm. if not, you know, you know, decades. Uh, and to, you know, try to encapsulate all that within, you know what I mean, a mm-hmm. two to three minute segment is just, is something that I realized it just can't be done. So if mm-hmm. there's something that I'm interested in, I'm more, in, I'd rather, you know, grab a, like a long form article and do a deep dive into it, you know what I mean? Versus waiting on, you know what I mean? My local newscaster or, you know what I mean? A Chris Cuomo or, you know, a, I don't know, Tucker, Tucker Carlson or, or somebody like that to provide yeah. me because there's always going to be a spin on it. And I think that, you know, there, there's a spin in um, print media as well. But if you if you do uh, look hard, look hard enough, you can find, uh, you know, some information that is pretty uh, well-rounded and pretty mm-hmm. even, even killed in terms of its, uh, in, in terms of the way it, it, it presents that information. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, I remember every morning when I'd sat down as a producer, I would see that little number of the amount of time I had to fill. And then I would take time away for sports. And then I would take time away from weather. Mm. And then I would take time away for, you know, the traffic. And then before you know it, you only have four minutes. And what are you going to pack into that four minutes that's going to be, you know, impact people? So, yeah, it's Mm a very, very brief window. Um, Mm -hmm. I think next I wanted to get into, this is definitely a character study. I mean, Jake Gyllenhaal is this this very crazy individual. Um, what are some uh, words you would kind of describe him as, uh, Mr. Bloom? Joey, mm. you want to kick us off? Um, well, I already said brazen earlier, but um, mm-hmm. so to, I guess to go with brazen, like kind of like fearless almost to a degree, but um, like you've got some good ones here. Like like you, you put manipulative. Um, I think that's a very... Um, Persistent. Of, very persistent, very manipulative. I mean, Adam was talking about that negotiation in, uh, that was in the Mexican restaurant. 
um, where basically it's like you're going to give me these things and like including having right. a relationship with me and it's like the one that's very like I said brazen because like that the you know Renee Russo's character should have just been like well get the, get the hell out of here no but she's so desperate for those ratings and the things that he's bringing mm. in that she's like okay I guess you know um, and it's just um, uh, I think maybe my favorite one that you put down here is unethical um, mm-hmm. and that builds throughout the film which we'll get into unethical or immoral um, because I, I remember we like we paused like you know get something to drink or go to the bathroom or whatever um, and I, there was like about 30 minutes left in the movie 25 minutes something like that and I was like so what, where the hell is this going like who's like, is this going to, you know, what, what's the build? Like, how is this going to, you know, what's he going to do mm-hmm. that's going to get him arrested or is going to get him killed um, That because he's going to do something he shouldn't do? And, you know, and then obviously, you know, we'll get into that in a bit, but it was just, uh, you know, the, the thing that just, you know, it, up to that point in the Mexican restaurant, it's like, because I think that was before he cut the brakes. Yeah. Yeah. So like up to the like so up to that point when he, he it's okay, he's driven. He he wants to succeed in this. He's had to learn on the streets. Okay. Yeah, maybe he's cutting some corners, but you know, it's not necessarily super bad. But then it's basically like you're going to sleep with me or I'm not going to keep giving you these stories. It's like uh, all right, that's very scummy. And then, you know, he cuts <laughs> dude's brakes, and it's like, oh, well, now we're trying to murder people. Okay, now we're, we're crossing some lines that you can't uncross. Um, so, Absolutely. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, I think you, you brought up um, a couple of, uh, I guess, attributes uh, that I would, uh, yeah, I, I definitely agree with, you know, the word, came to me was unconscionable um because (laughs) the one thing i was thinking of was like he gets he definitely gets ahead (laughs) uh you know in the film and he's definitely in a better position uh by the end of the film yeah anti-hero yes you know he's definitely an anti-hero and he's definitely in a better position at the end than you know in the beginning and I, i guess there's something to be said for how far in life you can get if your conscience isn't standing in the way. And we're seeing a lot of that in, you know, in our current day. And like I said, I'm not going to, like I said, just, you know, dive into, um, like I said, the political arena. But I, I think that you guys know what I'm hinting at, because if you have no shame, if you have no fear, <laughs> there are definitely some opportunities that you can take advantage of that most people wouldn't even think of. And says, um, <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and, and like, yeah, no, yo, you're, Joey, you're, you're, you're spot on. Um, because I, I don't know who it was who said this, but like, like, I think they said something along the lines of, you don't become a billionaire by being nice to everyone you come in contact with. No, you got to slit some throats. You know I what mean, I mean? And like, we can, we can hearken that back to, we watched, um, the social network for an episode and it's like, what did Mark Zuckerberg do to his best friend? Mm-hmm. Just completely screwed him out of the company. Mm-hmm. Just, it is like that was his best friend before yeah. they were famous. Before, the, and before he's they someone. Were, no, go ahead. And he just, just 
yeah, I'm going to screw you out of the company. Just, I was just like, wow. Just, yeah. so, I mean, yeah. And that dude's, you know, multi-billionaire. You don't get, you don't get there by not stepping on people, by not stepping on their, you know, stepping on their throats per se. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's very tough uh, for me to make a comparison between those two guys, but it feels like they both have, you know, they, we know that they both have a conscience, but it seems like they set it aside to certain degrees. You know what I mean? It seems like, uh, I, and I, I'm, inter- I'm just interested, I'm just throwing this out there to get, you know, your opinion on it because okay. they de- they're definitely, you know, there's definitely a part to Zuckerberg where you, you know that he... He has that whole humanitarian aspect to him. Too, yeah, right? he has the humanitarian aspect to him. And so you know that there's still someone there who cares where, you know, you watch as uh, Lou spends, you know, months, if not a year or more with his uh, apprentice, who he then makes, an, I guess, an executive vice president of video production right. news, uh, his um, his his uh, his uh uh, partner uh, Rick, mm-hmm. played by uh, Riz Ahmed, and um, you watch as he tells. He says he he tells him that you know, after um, Rick says, you know, something along the lines of you you know you're not looking out for you know those around you. You don't care about anybody but yourself. Mm-hmm. And uh, Lou ends up saying, you know, what is it that you know I re- you know recognize that you you. Uh, you, you do have these feelings or whatever, but he said, what if I just don't care? What if I just don't, you know, care about people in general? And I, so mm-hmm. I, I, I find that interesting because you see, you know, to Joey's point, I see some of that in a Zuckerberg <laughs> because he probably sees the bigger picture and he probably realizes that, you know, if I need a new business partner, I can get one. If I need new friends, I can make them. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Even if they're, even if it isn't genuine, there are people who will want to be with me or want to be a part of what I'm, um, what I'm building simply because of who I am. You mm-hmm. and these other individuals mean nothing to me. And, and which is why I brought that up because I, I just wonder if there are, you know, like I said, some comparisons between the two. Now you had mentioned that maybe Bloom has a conscience and I, I would say he definitely doesn't. I think that's where his character teeters on being psychotic because mm-hmm. he has an absolute detachment between being able to put his camera in the face of a dying person and not even seeing a person. He sees a paycheck. And mm-hmm. so I love the word Joey Capson saying was brazen. And that is what I did not have in my news career. I did not have that killer instinct to be able to, like mm-hmm. there was an instance where there was a, a, a story came out about, I think a father and a son who got in like a sword fight and then like ended up sending each other to the hospital. And I got tasked by my news director to call these people up and get a quote. And I was like, I don't want to call those people up. Those people are crazy. Um, yeah. That was a great example. There was a, a really, really sad instance where there's an infant and his mom like worked the overnight shift. So she was napping and they had a new dog and the dog mauled the baby to death. And it was this heartbreaking story that came out and the coroner just, just reading the coroner report, it was just gut-wrenching. And then the news director's just like, call the coroner up, get another quote. I'm like, oh, really? I mean, I just... It, didn't have that in me to have a total lack of nerves and be able to go into somebody's per, um, personal space like that. And, you know, for this news game, 
that that we were playing. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So what? Go ahead. No. uh, What do you? If he's someone who has no conscience, and you know, we realized, you know, over the course of the film that he's interested in building up his company, video uh, production news, into something that's a little bit um, larger than you know what he you know originally starts out as. I guess what what's his motivation? And from your perspective, uh, uh, Joey, what, what do you think is, is moving it? Because it doesn't seem like it's the money. Well, I mean, it definitely seems like there's a, there might be some like thrill-seeking involved because he definitely puts himself in some very dangerous situations. But, I mean, he's also, you know, he the beginning he has this like really run-down car and then, you know, he's in so the Charger, like a Mustang. He's got this really nice souped-up sports car. It's got, you know, all the highest tech in it. He's got, like, all these gadgets. He's still kind of living in a rundown place, but he's got, you know, some nicer stuff. Um, so, I mean, definitely seems to be some, you know, some money in that in the fact that he's got a nice car. And he tells uh, Rene Russo's character wants to, like, own this business and, like, be at the top. So, I mean, definitely has this drive to, like, own a business, and I guess, and, and make some money that way. So, I mean, I feel like that that's his goal, but he just... He definitely feels like he wants to just keep pushing the envelope of what he can record and get away with, especially once you get into like near the end of the movie and he gets to that um that home invasion that ends up being a drug deal gone bad and he gets there before the cops and that's the, the thing where he's like, I'm here before the cops. I'm gonna record hmm. the outside of the house and I'm like, Well, this seems like something out of a horror movie. This can't go wrong, which right then and there doesn't um and then he goes inside and he's just like walking around and recording and you know the fact that you know he's talking about he doesn't have a conscience like uh the the dude the old dude's still breathing on the floor and he just walks out and it's like well the cops are already on the way but they don't know that they need an ambulance and he doesn't try to like cpr or anything chop the bleeding he just leaves Mm. yep so um and then, like, to your point where the, the cop was, you know, investigating him because he very clearly did what she, she – he did what she knew he did, which was cut the evidence, cut the cut the footage, and then use it to try to set up another story, which is, mm-hmm. the, like, one of the most brazen things. Like he said, it would be illegal and immoral and wrong in his profession for him to do it. Yeah. He doesn't mm-hmm. He's just – he wants to chase the next big high, the next big thing that's going to make him that money. Um, just like he never paid Rick. He kept paying Rick like $15 or $30 a night until he's like, Rick, you can pick how much money you make. And he's like, it's dollars $75 a night. I can get more, couldn't I? And he's like, you did, but we already made the deal. And it's like, oh, my God. Like, all right. Yeah, I guess. I guess so. so. I think he's all about the W. He just wants to win at all costs. And when he loses, when he loses to Bill Paxton's character, that's when that psycho the psych the psychosis comes out. And that's when we get that scene where he's like yelling in the mirror and he breaks it and he cuts his lines because mm-hmm. he lost. He wants the W at all costs. Mm. Um, yeah, that yeah. makes uh, makes sense. Man, Bill Paxton, he and this was this was probably one of his last movies. He's he was looking a little rough. I'm not sure if they, you know, he they made him up much, but um yeah, Bill pa- pa- Paxton, uh, rest in peace. That's one. a good point about um, Paxton's character. Uh, I, I want to say that they made him up because uh, Gyllenhaal has uh, 
similar um, like characteristics as well. I mean, I I wonder, you know, like I said, what you guys think about just the way in which his his character was developed, particularly his eyes, because the eyes, you know, of an actor or an actress always tell you a lot about their character. And he has these very wide eyes mm -hmm. that seem uh, almost like perpetually, maybe not bloodshot, but, you know, you you know the he's you know the film is titled Nightcrawler. You know there were the 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 profession is referred to as Nightcrawling. It takes place at night, so he always has this dreary uh, look to him. Uh, mm -hmm. And I I found it I, I I honestly felt that it was probably one of the most one of the traits uh, phys or physical attributes about him that stood out the most because it also it pointed to like this wide eyed. Uh, optimism that he kind of had within him that was kind of, you know, self-taught, but it was also, like I said, it, there was also this menace behind it too. You know what I mean? You, if you think of like some of the characters, like you mentioned, like character actor, like Steve Buscemi, or uh, I think it's, it's uh, uh, the uh, gentleman, the actor from First Lang's M, Peter Lore. Okay. Uh, if you think about, you know, the way in, in which their eyes uh, told a lot about, you know what I mean? <laughs> told yeah. us a lot about their characters. That was, um, that was something that was, uh, that, that really stood out to me. So, you, you know, your point about Bill Paxton, uh, it, it, it's probably something that they, they developed for the mm -hmm. film because it makes you know, complete sense with him staying up all night long, every night to, you know, to try to do his best at this news game. Yeah. It, it totally looks like somebody that's doing that where it doesn't show quite as much on Jill Hall, but he's, he's kind of more, he's a lot more fresh in the game too. And, yeah, yeah, and, no, no, that makes sense. And he's supposed to, you know, be a much younger person, you know, as yeah. uh, Bill Paxton's character. He's been doing it for like like twenty years or something. So, mm -hmm. you know, Jill and supposed to be a younger guy. You know, it's much easier when you're, you know, twenty years old, twenty five or thirty even, to stay up from, you know, seven, eight, nine o'clock at night till six, seven in the morning versus if you're supposed to be in your late forties, early fifties. You know, it, it would definitely have much more of a toll on your body. I really liked mm -hmm. how they set up the um, cause the scenes inside the studio, uh, the TV studio where he does the selling of his um, you know his his latest um, video. It's definitely a, a definitely a whole different environment in itself. And I love how they set it up by always showing the different antennas of I think the Channel Six News. Um, I really enjoyed whenever Jill or Bloom's character is first kind of figuring out the news game. He's flicking through each of the news stations coverage. And I remember doing that many, many times when I was an assistant in the newsroom. And a, a fun story, um, I visited uh, Graceland, uh, you know, Elvis's home, and he would watch all the news stations at once. And he had uh, three TVs stacked on top of each other in his living room in order to do that. So that was kind of a fun thing I thought of. Um, hmm. Did you guys know, did he have a top knot going on? Did, did he have the samurai ah, yes. mentality yeah, going did. on? Mm -hmm. Watering that plant? Sort of some sort of like a little man bun or something of some sort going on. <laughs> Which, you know, of course I was like, well, if it's good enough for, for Jake, then I guess it's good enough for me. But then, you know, he turned out to be um, a very, very not good person. So I was like, maybe I shouldn't uh, um, <laughs> use that as an example. Now someone who, um, okay, so I took um, like ethics courses and whenever I was studying journalism and Basically what they show in this movie where they're all up in personal on these like bloody bodies and stuff that would just not fly on like local news coverage 
um, in most cases. Um, even I remember body bags coming up a few times and we we're just like, no, we don't show that. I mean, it's really up to like a news director to decide that kind of stuff. But the 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 amount of gore you see in this movie is not at all what you would see on the, the evening news um, in most cases. And so um, I kind of like the and now me knowing that like it did like. A lot of people knowing that that might bother them because they wouldn't feel like this movie is realistic in terms of portraying broadcast news. But me, I see this as a very cinematic interpretation. So I really enjoyed seeing the more grittiness because it, it only escalates, you know, what this character is all about in terms of, um, yeah, capturing that on film, video. And also they were like trying to, they were, you know, getting stuff for like 5 a.m. and like 6 a.m. news. So, you know, you would definitely have less... I mean, you'd have a lot of viewers, but obviously you're not showing it at six o'clock in the afternoon, um, you know, where, so they probably felt maybe they could get away with a little bit more at five in the morning than you would at five in the afternoon. But you got to think in mind that that's also the LA market. So um, there's probably a lot of eyes on the morning news, you know, people oh. sipping their coffee about to go to work. Well, yes, which is why she wanted sensationalized to, you know, to attract the most viewers. Mm-hmm. But, you know, at the same time, it's, you know, time periods of when you can get away with showing what you can get away with you know you you could get away with you know at six o'clock you you couldn't say shit on tv but you get to 10 o'clock and you got law and order and the shield and all of that and all of a sudden now you've got you can start cussing and people are getting shot in the face and so that's a good point um another little detail that i enjoyed was the first time he does show off his news footage it shows him how like he set up his camera to get a test shot and stuff, a very rookie move. And then as you, it, it progresses, you know, you see his talent increasing. There's that time where he's like at a scene and he's like basically standing over the guy's shoulder, figuring out exactly what he's supposed to be doing. So like he says, he's a quick learner. Um, or the one where he like, he moved the bodies at like a car accident. Mm-hmm. That like was frame. great. Yes. And it starts off with the one, it's like a home invasion where like he moves like the family pictures and right next to the bullet shots in order to manipulate the news. Um, A little bit later, he he has more of an eye for what he's shooting. And so, yeah, he moves the body out. So as the movie goes on, he's um, increasingly becoming less ethical with what he's doing. And to the point of where he's actually manipulating what's going on with him um, setting up his own story, essentially. Yeah, for the, the the big the big spot at the end. Yeah, the fa- I mean the fact that the film you know takes place in L.A. Like I said, you can't look past the fact that maybe uh, since this was uh, I guess an original production by by Gilroy that he was probably hinting at some of the ways in which uh, you know Tinseltown kind of you know manipulates. Uh, certain images, you know what I mean, to produce a desired effect. Because you know, point. he drags the body out. He sets the camera down. He goes over to the car and sees the um, the body. He drags it over to his desired spot, and then he goes back. He picks up the camera, and you know he's trying to like get it in the right position. And I guess you know he finds the desired position, and then his face lights up in a way that is just. It's at one at one point. It's like you're. I don't know. It's it's really. I feel really weird saying this, but like you're happy for him, but at the same time you're almost like disgusted because you oh, realize yeah. that this sure. perfect shot that he's getting uh, is at the expense of this individual who's just you know gone through this you know horrific accident. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's also like I said. I think I just think it also points to some of the. Uh, 
excruciating takes that someone like a Stanley Kubrick or someone else would put these actors through over and over and over again. And, you know, it would probably bring you know, Kubrick and a few others great joy, but it was probably exhausting. Um, and, <laughs> uh, uh, for, you know, for the actors, uh, on set and the, you know, entire production crew, I, I should say. For sure. Um, one thing that it didn't come across my mind while watching the film, but whenever I, just before we started the show, I wanted to bring up just Nightcrawler IMDb, and I typed in Nightcrawler, and I saw a worm, and I'm like, oh yeah, that does mean worm. And in a way, he's kind of a wormy character. Um, see any, uh, mm. does that stick at all? <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. He's definitely a worm, like, like a, a very wormy character, for sure. Okay. So yeah, he's never too scared. Oh, and if he didn't have a, a, a job as a, you know, you know, getting these uh, this late night news coverage, I mean, he'd make a good, um, you know, like a job like interview coach because he's all about knowing how to ask for, you know, over ask for stuff and then come down. He's like an expert haggler. So um, that brings it back to that scene where you know he's talking to his partner and his partner's very like you know can i ask for that but no bloom would be like nope i'm always shooting for the stars always wanting the win very brazen in his mentality mm. all right so much to talk about with this one i really enjoyed this conversation um there's a random th- there's this one scene where like it shows like this um i think it's a car dealership like balloon thing that flops around have you seen those before the, it was the very... wavy whacking inflatable tube arm wavy <laughs> wacky inflatable arm tube guy i know i knew exactly where you're going too i, I love the family guy reference uh it was just so bizarre to, i think it held on that uh, one of those for just a few moments i'm just like what's this for i don't know but it got my attention and it's, it, you know, it also be neon, like the Nightcrawler gummy candies that you eat that are also oh. worms. <laughs> there you go. Oh, man. All right. So, um, gosh, that's, yeah, I already mentioned the scene where he's in the mirror, um, how he's willing to play dirty. Goodness gracious. Um, uh, do you, I guess, what did you th- think about, I guess, his relationship with Nina? Because obviously it's a a relationship that's built on the fact that she now has this up and coming, you know, uh, nightcrawler who can obtain these uh, images for her. Uh, He seems to have, you know, no ethics. And, uh, you know, she's someone who uh, is is performing some sort of balancing act. But she's definitely uh, in that in that in that gray area where you could uh, you could probably make an argument that she is just as unethical as he is because she's always questioning um, whether or not something uh, can be shown and versus whether it should be shown and they almost seem like a perfect fit for each other uh, if you don't include, you know what I mean, the, the, you know, the age difference and the fact that she really doesn't want to have anything to do with him mm-hmm. um, outside of, you know, uh, you know the, the negotiations that take place over this footage. But uh, one of the things I thought was interesting is that, the, you know, there's absolutely no sex in this film. Uh, and yeah. it's alluded to by Lou, but mm-hmm. 
there's uh, there's this there's a sexual tension and possible aggression uh, during these negotiating scenes between the two of them that almost feels like sex <laughs> in a way yeah. because they yeah, the you know what I mean? they she does he wants her she doesn't want him but they both want this one thing together and i loved i i just loved those scenes uh, particularly the scene where he comes to the studio after he's videotaped that home robbery and the camera is really really in their face at that point in time and you can just tell that there there's you know in in another film the looks that nina is giving lou would be interpreted as you know a a very very you could interpret it very in, in a sexual manner but in this case what's turning her on is this footage that he has and he recognizes that and he uses that to his advantage. But I, I just thought it was a great way of uh, interjecting like a, like I said, you know, just like the like sex and, and the sexual tension that occupies a lot of these films, uh, mm-hmm. in a, it, it, you know, into a film that really doesn't need it in order to move, uh, move the narrative forward. Right. That's oh. a great. Go ahead, Joe. I was going to say, uh, I, I think the thing that I noticed kind of between their relationship and to go off of Justin's point of like, like Lou hates to lose. Well, when you win, what do you have? When you win, you have power. Mm. In the beginning of their relationship, Nina has all the power. She's mm-hmm. like, you go here, do this, bring us, you, you know, you call us. If you have something, we'll tell you if it's worth anything. Um, also, you know, your camera sucks, get a better camera. Like she has all <laughs> the power. She holds, you know, everything at the beginning. And then when we get to the end, he has all the power. He's like, we will do this, and it will be better than it was in the bedroom, alluding to what you were talking about. And he's like, you will mention my name of my company you, so many times, and it's this, and it's if I say it's the amount of money, it will be that amount of money, blah, blah, blah. Like, so it, I think the relationship was all about power and you know how he, he flipped it to the end where he had the power because, as mm-hmm. Justin said, he does not like to lose. He doesn't like to lose negotiations. And it's also that manipulation. He used his manipulation, his immorality, um, his, unethnic, un, his lack of ethics to, to achieve that. And her, he even used her lack of ethics. The fact that where she would maybe do some of the immoral things that he did, her willingness to be like, you know what? This will make, this, make the station money. This will keep me in good standings. It'll get the station ratings. Maybe we shouldn't show it, but we can show it. So I'm gonna, boom. And then he totally took that and used it against her to get what he wanted to get the power. I like what you said about um, she. Her first thought is not should we show that? Is can we show that? And then you have the, the the guy next to them. He's the assignment desk editor, and he's like, we can't show that. We can't show that. And so that's um, you know that that side of the story. Um, one of the interesting moments was whenever he does. When they do show his footage of this um, crime scene that he got to first um, on the air, and basically the anchors are just talking through it very um, freely, like saying, you know, how they're concerned about this and they're concerned about that. Where we saw it from Lou's perspective, where he just wants to get coverage, he doesn't care about that guy, he's just filming everything. But then you hear the more human aspect of what he's actually capturing with those folks. So I thought that was a good way of contrasting it. And then, um, so that builds up um, into. Oh, go ahead. Uh, but also into that, um, 
notice, you know, in that scene, Nina's also say this, save this, uh -huh. save this, not only mentioning Lou's company, but like, Make sure you use these descriptive words. And the best to, the best news producers do that. They're right in their anchor's ear telling them exactly what to say. Well, but yes, mm -hmm. but that also kind of goes into like, here's this news and we're going to tell you what Branding to feel. It. To, what a horror, yeah. um, what the, horror show in the, the hills or something? I forget what they branded it, but it was very extreme. Yeah, I mean, so obviously that was a very extreme thing that happened, especially if it was in you know, like a nice suburban neighborhood. Um, but yeah, it was also to kind of fit that narrative of what they wanted it to see. Because obviously, you know, that, that didn't fit its own narrative, you know, uh, visually. So you had to put um, some audio narrative to go with it. Um, but I thought that was uh, just an interesting thing to harken back to what we were talking about earlier. All right. Any, um, let's get into the, the climax a little bit. Um, any uh, opening thoughts? boy um when we get there uh well i guess in leading up to it when when you realize what he's doing mm -hmm. I'm like this is gonna are go we talking back. about the scene wherever he's across the street and he sees the two guys eating and then the cops start coming in well i'm i'm when i realized that he's kept this footage okay right like leading up to this like he's kept the footage and he's gonna use it to manipulate and he He's like, I found this guy's address. I'm like, all right, this is bad. I don't know how this is going to be bad. But this is going to be real bad. And then, you know, he's negotiating with Rick and manipulates him into staying over and over and over. And then they go into the donut shop, and that's when he makes the phone call. And then he leaves his name, and I'm like, but the cops, you... you the 911, right? I was yeah, baffled by that him. as well. Why they, it's why, because like, he wants all the credit. It doesn't matter. I mean, yeah, he wants all the credit, <laughs> but you've already told him you don't have this footage. How else would you know where to be? But, but then, yeah, then it's it, just like Rick said, he's like, you said we were going to follow him to like, like a better neighborhood. This is a, like a coffee shop. There's like six people in there. It's like going to be like, a shootout. And he's like, oh, we just work with what we're given. And it's like, no, you made this. Like, you <laughs> like, you forced this. Man, the, mo man, the most cold-blooded thing he does is whenever he gets his partner, he's like telling his partner, hey, hey, get this shot. And the partner goes around and bam, gets shot. And he risked a person's life, you know, just to get this shot. And then he puts the camera in his partner's face. Absolutely no regard for anybody. Yeah, no, not just get the shot. It's like, oh, he's dead. He tells him that home that the dude is dead. Mm -hmm, that's true. Yeah, and he lied to him. And, it, and Rick was like, you saw him, and he was like, yeah, but you, you, you said you were gonna quit and you know ruin my reputation or whatever it was he he said. And he was like, you you would do it again, wouldn't you? And Rick's like, no. And he was like, I couldn't risk it. And it's like, got this man shot and killed mm -hmm. for. For some negotiate, oh, you took my negotiating power away from me. That's for some negotiating power because, as you put it, he lost. He lost the negotiation. That's a good point. Oh, yeah. It's like, boy, that's uh, mm. a. It, it feels like, I mean, at that point, and, and maybe he reached this point prior to uh, that, uh, that scene. Uh, the, uh, the the scene with the shootout, 
but it feels like his obsession and detachment from like the horrific images that he's capturing is pro it, it, it reminds me of, and I was just looking this up, and it looks like you actually see, you have seen this, Justin. It reminds me of the uh, Michael Hanukkah film from 1992, Benny's Video. Okay. Uh, because I see in Lou uh, the the adult version of this young kid. Mm -hmm. A detachment. Who is obsessed, yeah, just the detachment to the image. And, you know, the obsession with capturing it, but, you know, when you play it back and you rewatch it, you just feel nothing. Uh, and I guess in Lou's case, he probably feels, you know, a sense of pride in capturing an image, but no empathy for those, you know, whose know. lives have been destroyed, uh, you know, either, you know, by, you know, some uh, random circumstance or, you know, through his own doing uh, in, the, in the case of Rick. And... Uh, <laughs> It's um, that's probably, uh, you know, to your, you know, to your point, Justin, it's probably the toughest part uh, of the film is watching him. I can't even say he developed a relationship with Rick, you know, just I would say just stringing him along the entire time. <laughs> if anything, it's, it's just the bickering they do back and forth between how they navigate the GPS. I think he might have taken away some, something from them and actually learning the craft. But, yeah, in terms of respect, not at all. <laughs> Yeah, there's not there's absolutely nothing there. And like I said, that's why, you know, that, uh, you know, that Hanukkah film is, is probably uh, I think you could watch that film and then watch this film and just see a direct connection between <laughs> the two. You know what I mean? They're only different. And uh, the only difference being their uh, their first and last names. But he's definitely um, the, you know, the, the, the adult version of uh, of Lou. And it's 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 like like I said, that that scene, that sequence. Uh, it's, just, it's a very eerie movie, Benny's video. So, yeah. And I actually misremembered how this thing ended. I thought Lou died at the end, but no. Oh, he's really? The, he's <laughs> the big winner. I, I was surprised. I was like, oh wow, he's, and he, um, you know, he has these fresh faces in front of him, and they're gonna be his new interns. And he stole Bill Paxton's dream of having two vans. Um, I forgot to say earlier, the thing that Bill Paxton says, you might have missed it. Um, he talks about like having an FTP server in order to cut down time between like going to stations and selling. Um, and that, that's totally legit. Um, in the news business, you do have these video servers called FTPs um, that you distribute video with. So that I, I enjoy hearing the um, you know actual technical broadcast terms used throughout this. Um, but yeah, he's the big winner. And, um, after we see him be, you know, the worst guy around, he, he comes out on top. What do you feel about that? To make you angry? No, <laughs> I, I think that, uh, in this day and age, uh, with that, we have seen, um, or we recognize that you can be a pretty terrible person and still come out on top. And still fail, fail upwards. You know what I mean? It, it's we see that in you know in film, we see that in real life. And so you know, watching that film, you know, I don't feel happy. You know, for you know, or excuse me, I'm not happy for Lou, but I recognize that it's just part of life. You know what I mean? And it's you know, eventually he's going to, uh, you know, his actions and his unethical nature is going to catch up with him. But it's just it's just not going to happen right now when we want it to. But a, I do think mm -hmm. that it does. It, it will eventually come back around and bite him 
in the butt. Oh, I agree with that yeah. 100%. Um, I mean, you have to have relationships with cops in that business. And, I mean, he was, like, showing, um, yeah, he was burning cops left and right, especially with, you know, videotaping, um, you know, getting him dying. So, yeah, he, he, mm -hmm. his luck has to run out, you would think. Um, yeah, so... I mean, that's the, that's the American way, right? You just step on everybody underneath you to make more and more money and more and more excess and, and build yourself up. I mean, that's that's just all he's doing, right? He's, that's that's mm -hmm. his manifest destiny, right? So, mm -hmm. but yeah, it, karma will get him. It just isn't in that movie. I mean, also like, you know, this movie is about him filming a bunch of stuff. So if he dies, like who's going to film him and sell it? Or, you know, the, 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 the major... I guess you know downfall was no one would film it and sell it and then he ultimately loses out but um no this was uh, yeah it's just um you know he, he gets the like oh you're the new interns and i'm just like oh all oh, these poor these poor children I'm just, I to, <laughs> like no they're also unpaid internships are like terrible and like the worst things ever but that's a completely separate thing but just yeah. no these poor children so all right, let's wrap it up. Um, what rating was out of five stars? What would you guys give it? Um, I gave it four and a half, but I think, um, like honestly, talking about it with you and like some of the things we we talked about and like some of the things we pieced together with like he, uh, you know, doesn't want to lose and and how that affects some of his personality. Like I actually think I might would actually bump it up to five. This is a, this is the first on the show, Adam. I've actually swayed. We've swayed <laughs> Joey's opinion. I can't believe it. Oh, you, you swayed awesome. me. You swayed me from a four and a half to a five. Oh, a win is a win, in the words of Blue. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Adam? Uh, I'd give it four stars. Uh, it, it's a firm four stars. I, I do think that this is a film that you know you could watch with you know with others and. Like I said, I, during the course of your discussions, like your appreciation of it, or my appreciation of it at least, will continue to grow, and you know it could definitely get you know another star, at least another half star. But it, it it's a firm, firm four right now. I really awesome. enjoyed this. Yeah, it's a five stars for me. Between all my personal connections, the um, you know the the whole thriller aspect of it, we really kicks into gear toward the climax, and then just you know all the the whole depth of the film in general that we've been talking about on and on um yeah it's five stars for me all right we're going to take a quick break and we're going to, we got one more film to talk about we've been going a little while but um stay with us and we're going to talk about some romance that's uh joey's forte right coming coming back oh yes i'm such such the romantic <laughs> And we're back. Now let's talk about our final film of the night, uh, Blue Valentine, from 2010, directed by Derek Cena France, who also worked with Ryan Gosling in his film Place Beyond the Pines, which I had seen a couple years ago. And so this is the first time I've seen Blue Valentine. Uh, Joey, what's the synopsis for this one? Uh, it's a nonlinear breakup movie that jumps back and forth between the beginning and the end of a couple's relationship. Um which, you know, that couple's going to be Ryan Gosling and uh, Michelle Williams. And I, I just thought it was real interesting uh, that this would be the second Michelle Williams movie this season and the second, we already had the second Jake Gyllenhaal movie this season. And then earlier... Oh, what else was she in? The movie with Jake Gyllenhaal. 
Um, Brookback Mountain. Oh, yeah. Sorry, Duh. Brookback Mountain. Excuse me. <laughs> Forgot about um, that. Yes, and then uh, we had uh, Ryan, uh, Mr. Ryan Gosling, uh, last season with a Gangster Squad, even though I think that was a challenge movie and not an actual movie. But yeah. still, it's the second time we're going to be delving. I just thought that was a real uh, neat thing that they all just kind of hit the same two at the one time. So. Neat. All right. So, um, yeah, I hadn't seen this one before. I had definitely heard of its reputation being this, like, really, like, gut-wrenching, um, like, doom romance movie. I heard a lot of, like, YouTubers um, tease the fact that, like, around Valentine's Day, you'll see Blue Valentine, like, next to the register or whatever for, like, a quick, like, pick. you pick it up and, you know, give it to your significant other along with those chocolate and roses. And that might be a bad move. <laughs> well, because Valentine oh, is in the... Uh, title does not mean it um it's i mean there's some romantic elements about it but i mean blue should tell you like blue is blue is sad (laughs) sad like i don't know most people like to watch um and i was just gonna say although if you do find a woman who can appreciate a film like this on valentine's day you know you gotta keep her you know you got a true cinephile Mm. so there you go that or she's like she she can appreciate Ryan Gosling trying to look like Jason Lee um, from My Name Is Earl. <laughs> now, did you guys um, did you side with either um, party in this this scenario? The the Ryan Gosling character was named Dean or Michelle Williams, who was Cindy. Did you feel that was balanced? Uh, apparently, the director felt that it was balanced, but I I would have a different take. What what do you guys think? Um, I, I'm gonna say that like, like, like I, I, I can see that you know like Dean was trying to, to fight for the relationship, but he was really, really terrible at reading the fucking room, like, mm-hmm. like pick reading body language and reading signals and like, like I get it, he was still in love and 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 wanted to make it work, but he he could not just pick up the signals that she was putting down, and to to the point where he you know they're in the hotel room and he's trying, which she already said, like, I don't want to go to, but you know, he basically forces it. And then he's trying to like, they're trying, he's trying to have sex with her and she's like, not about it. And then, you know, yeah, no, I definitely think she's more like, I, I think she's like more justified, I guess, in the wanting a divorce than, than he is for not wanting it. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I, I, I guess there's a part of me that could choose sides, but I'm I see it more as a failed romance that's due to their un it's either unrealistic expectations or the fact that they never considered what came after the romance itself. Because, you know, it's something, you know, I think this this happens world over, but, you know, we've turned it into an industry. Uh, But, you know, you see these these like Bridezilla shows and these other shows about weddings and, you know, the big day. And there's so much emphasis that's placed on like that that event uh, and what that means for the relationship without actually digging into 
uh, you know, the individuals themselves and, and the foundation for their relationship to determine whether or not it's something that can even succeed on its own. But you can put forth um, like an image, uh, you know, both for yourself and, and, and for others to demonstrate that you have something that, you know, I mean, appears to be everlasting and, and appears to be strong. And I think that's what we see. And I think that's the beauty of the way the film is edited because you could see uh, the progressions as, you know, they begin, they, they first meet each other, they begin to fall in love, and then it's contrasted with like this current day. And you really only see, you know, the, the courtship, you know, the romance, and then boom, you're just thrown right into the present day. And I, I think the, the fact that Derek didn't spend a lot of time on, you know, focusing on, you know, the couple as they built, like, the, 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 the foundation of their relationship, like understanding each other, you know, each other's uh, likes and dislikes, um, each other's interest and all those, all those, those little things that go into making a successful relationship. I thought that was like very, in, one of the more interesting aspects of the film. And I think that's why, uh, I think it's why the relationship didn't last. And I think that's why the, the film is so powerful because, you know, you see, like I said, you see pretty much the, the great aspects and you see this, like, you, and then you just watch it fall apart, but you don't, it, uh, you know, as I was watching the film, I just didn't see anything that kept, that would actually keep them together other than Frankie, their, uh, their daughter, and the fact that they were once in love. And so, uh, you know, I, from my perspective, I couldn't side with either character. I just saw, like I said, two individuals who were once um, uh, inseparable, but they didn't really understand why, you know, that was the case, or they, and they didn't really understand what, I guess, what was actually needed in order to build like a successful relationship. You know what I mean? Maybe they just thought that, um, you know, their early romance would just kind of carry them through. And that, you know, that clearly, you know, wasn't the case. I come at it at a little bit of a different perspective being um, I've been married for 12 years. So uh, mm -hmm. I definitely had a lot of sympathy for Dean. Um, I would say me and Dean are kind of similar kind of personality types. Um, you can really read the fact out of him that, um, you know, he wants to kind of do his own thing, be his own boss. Um, he likes to get up in the morning, have a drink, go paint some houses. He's good. His wife, on the other hand, much more ambitious, and she wants that out of him, but he doesn't want it out of himself. Um, I thought one of the most interesting parts about this movie was Dean's tattoos. You see a, um, is it a heart on his um, wrist, very much having his heart out on his sleeve. Um, that metaphor definitely stood out to me. Um, one of the tattoos that really stood out in the, um, the sex motel was the giving tree. Um, and I'm not... I, was trying to figure out how I was going to read that. But yeah, there's definitely this aspect of give and take in the relationship. And so I thought, yeah, the placement of the tattoos on Dean was a really, really cool way um, of bringing some art into, um, you know, how you should feel about these characters. And overall, I just felt more sympathetic to him. Um, she kind of had more of an enigma to her. I could kind of, I could read that she is more ambitious. And then she got herself in the situation where she got stuck. Um, but she's a little bit harder to read at the same time. So um, 
so yeah, the more when I hear you guys siding with her, you know, it makes me reconsider. Um, so it's it's a challenge. Um, one fun fact about this movie is they wanted to shoot it six years apart. Um, they wanted to shoot all the stuff at the beginning, wait six years, and then like form a bomb between them and then shoot the stuff at the end. But the studio didn't want to give them that much time. So I think they only waited about a month in between shooting. And there is definitely a big uh, contrast between like the grainier look of the, um, the, the flashbacks compared to how the, the, um, the, the modern part of the relationship is. Mm-hmm. A lot of good stylistic stuff there. Did you guys think it was relentlessly sad? That's always the vibe that I heard, but I did. I wouldn't really say for me. I didn't think it was relentlessly sad. There's definitely bummer moments throughout it, but it was almost like a fuse being lit at both ends, and then finally, when we get to the middle, that's when it explodes. Mar- obviously, um, did you guys see Marriage Story? No, but yes. I, I have not seen Marriage Story. But it's funny that you brought that up because literally, I'm sitting there watching it, and I was like, "Is this Marriage Story before Marriage Story?" Have, having never seen Marriage Story, but I kind of you know, know the the idea behind marriage story that you know it's uh, the the marriage between Adam Driver and um Scarlett Johansson and you know they have their their problems and their I guess divorce and what have you or what you whatever goes on because I need to see that movie I really like to see that movie um just haven't yet um but that was literally a thing that I said like out loud is like is this marriage story before marriage story yeah I didn't really I, I didn't find or think of the film as a bummer. And I, like I said, I, I think that's due to the wonderful editing, because you could have told that film from you know the start of the romance to the end of the romance, but you know that's been done before. Uh, you you know where it's headed, and so you you can prepare yourself yeah. for the eventual heartbreak. But this, the way in which they decided to structure the film, is so interesting because you have these moments that are incredibly tender and then you're just brought a snap, you know, you brought right back into reality and into the present day. And it, it's almost, you know, you know, you know, uh, costumes and physical changes aside, it's almost like you're watching two different people, uh, engage in this relationship. And for me, what kept the movie from really being a downer is just continually uh, seeing that potential uh, in their relationship. And like, and like I said, from my perspective, it just seems like they were too mature and unable to really understand what makes uh, a, a successful relationship. But because, you know, throughout the film, the moments of sadness are almost supported by, like I said, these earlier moments where they're first meeting each other and they're first falling in love. It never, you know, I never really um, felt like, you know, felt like like this was much of a downer. Uh, it, it just, like I said, it just felt like more like life in that, you know what I mean? Like I said, you, you know, you just have those ups and downs. And like I said, that's how love and, you know, many aspects of life goes. You, you, you accept the good and the bad. Um, and you, you kind of just roll with the punches. Um, I wouldn't say relentlessly sad. Um, definitely not relentlessly. But it, it definitely is a, is sad, especially the end. But you know, you're talking about the editing. Um, that is actually one of the things that I, I really loved about this movie is that it was it's like a mirror image, or like a, if you want to say a yin and a yang, but I guess more of a mirror image of the beginning of the relationship to the end and how 
you finally they're 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 hitting you with the flashbacks of the beginning of their relationship and it's they, they it finally gets to them being married right as mm-hmm. you know they're I want the divorce and give me space and it's that big fight and it's like right at the end and it's like and then also they have those fireworks in the background and that's the big explosion the the big explosion of their their marriage and I just thought that that whole like the whole way that they did that was was fantastic. Um, I say they, I guess I should say um, the director, you know, um, but it was, uh, it was really well done in that aspect. And um, it was definitely a sad movie, but it, it was not, um, I don't think it was relentlessly sad. Um, in that aspect, I definitely was expecting um, because of like the very first scene in the movie um, where it was like, uh, be careful, put your seatbelt on, put your seatbelt on, you know, these people drive fast. Oh, look at this asshole. You know, he doesn't know how to drive. Like I was actually kind of expecting um, like something to happen to Frankie or, you know, they were going to, you know, maybe do the, they were going to flash for maybe a couple of months after that. And it was going to be the, uh, they, they, they're trying to reconcile and then like there'd be some sort of accident kind of thing, like that kind of sad um, that they didn't, they didn't go with, but it definitely looked like at the beginning they were kind of maybe trying to, um, you know, foreshadow, but it was more of his character and how he acted towards people versus foreshadowing that the the car was, you know, people drove crazily on their street kind of deal. Yeah. They played the dead, the dead dog card. Yeah, they did play that. So get you a little Um, bit emotional with that. And then, I mean, the daughter's attachment to Dean, I think that was another aspect that, I mean, she was just, he had such this playful childish personality that she latched onto that made i think i also was one of the reason i i really was drawn to him um i did get a kick out of uh the the receding hairline though <laughs> <laughs> yeah shout out to the uh i guess hair and makeup artist they made ryan gosling look uh unattractive like that's uh, yeah, like you said they, I, i'm sure that's one of the reasons why they wanted to shoot that uh, you know many years apart so they could have a change in Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, physical characteristics. And physical characteristics uh but whoever uh was styling him they, i mean they did a great job of uh, like i said really uh aging him well yeah they still would have had to put him in hair and makeup <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah he's, mm-hmm. he's a good looking dude so <laughs> mm-hmm. um there's a really nice scene uh the the breakfast scene to begin with um i was kind of watching it back and um the rack focus they use between like showing him in focus and then making him blurry and then making um, her in focus, you know, to really emphasize the divide um, that they're going through. It's just really, really good um, stylistic stuff that went into this movie. I think, oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I was reading your notes, but I I guess I'll point this out because it's... uh, Sure. Unless you were about to get to it, but uh, I, I kept thinking about, you know, the earlier scene where they're they're looking for the dog and uh, Cindy, Michelle Williams' character, ends up noticing the dog, I guess, lying on the side of the road. Right. And, you know, she takes a minute to kind of recover and then she heads over to, I guess, this recital and she mentions it to Dean. And Dean imme- immediately kind of just gets on her about it telling her how many times her, I told right? not to leave mm-hmm. a fence o- open and I you know people always talk about love being like something like in like a garden or something that you you know you have to tend to 
lest the weeds grow up or something like that. And I, you know, you know, the dog is probably just a dog, but I did view that conversation and, you know, maybe even that animal as like a representation of, of something that it's a shared responsibility. It's a shared effort. And, and in the same way, their, their relationship, their love is something that's to be shared too. And there's clearly um, some deficiencies there. You know what I mean? And in terms of, in, in certain cases, one partner putting forth more effort than, than the others and vice versa. But um, I, I was I was struck. And I think that if anything, that, you know, to answer your earlier question, Justin, that would probably, I would probably side with Cindy more. Uh, you know, if I really had to take a, choose sides as the as film went on, because you could see, like I said, it, you know, uh, Dean was, you know, he could be playful but he also had the ability to lay blame on her in a way that felt somewhat un, uncalled for. Mm-hmm. And there, there, you know, I, now that I think about it, there were moments in the film where I realized, okay, now I understand, you know, why she feels the way she does. Because in addition to the ambition aspect of it, of, of things that like, like you mentioned, there were there were certain ways where, like I said, he just wasn't getting the this wasn't getting the hint. I think you you brought that up, Joey. <laughs> and right, yeah, there were other ways where he was placing blame on her in a way that, that I felt un, uh, felt to be unnecessary, and because there were certain aspects of their life that were you know it, it's a shared effort in terms of them putting forth the necessary work to make that relationship work. Yeah. Um... And, and, and the thing about it is, like, she, she's acting like him being a painter is, like, this horrible thing. But, like, like down here, like, people people are painters. You know, they make pretty good money. Like, mm-hmm. and obviously, you know, like, down here, the cost of living is a lot, a lot less. But it's, like, what's, what's wrong with him just being a painter? If he's happy and, you know, they look like they lived in a decent house and they weren't going for not in this movie. So, like, what's the big deal? If that's what makes him happy and he comes home and he's playing with his daughter and he's married to you and he's content doing that, then like, I I don't see the big deal like that aspect. Yeah. There was some blame on her because she was constantly harping on him, but you know, you get to like, you know, more towards the end of the movie and uh, you know, he's like forces, forces her into like the sex motel, forces her, into a situation where she wants to get drunk and she can't because she's on call, but she ends up having to do it anyway. And then, you know, leads to the big, the big fight at the end. And, you know, he shows his ass in her place of work, which gets her fired. And it's like, like, that's not, that's not acceptable. Like in Mm -hmm. any way, like he's, he's acting how you would expect him to have acted when he was a teenager, like at the beginning of the movie or like in his early twenties, you know, I guess because they were college aged or whatever. Um, so, and, and, and then, you know, you see the scene in the liquor store where she sees that guy and she, and then she tells him, oh, well, I saw Bobby Ontario and you don't really understand the, quite understand yet the, mm-hmm. why he's reacting the way he is. But, you know, she doesn't, she probably shouldn't have even mentioned anything. And then she's like, oh, well, he's fat. He's a loser. And then, but he's like, well, F you. And it's like, that's. You know, that's not that's not helping. That's not attacking the problem. That's attacking the person, and you know that never helps anything. To the point where she just pulls off the side of the road and like goes into the woods, and it's just like, all right, these are this is they're, they're not 
neither one of them is communicating, and when they are, neither one of them is listening. Mm. Yeah, I thought the movie was really interesting in the fact that you would have these really strange interactions, and then they would get paid off, like, you know, shortly thereafter. Like, it's very strange that the Bobby guy's like, so you're being faithful? And you're like, whoa, what's that all about? Um, watching it back, I was really struck by how much her face lights up when they're having this little chat. Like, and we find out later, like, you know, he, you know, he's more of an ambitious guy, but man, she really cuts him off hard after, you know, he's very reckless with their sexual relationship. Um, and yeah, it's a great point, Joey, about, you know, how, how mad she is after, you know, um, Dean, you know, really tears into her about, um, you know, mentioning the fact that, um, she saw him. And you really notice in that argument they have in the car how tight the shot is, which really kind of hints at the how claustrophobic they probably feel in this relationship. Yeah, and you at the time, like like I was saying, you don't you don't understand like why is Dean so upset? It was just some, you know, some guy, and you're like, okay, they probably went to school or maybe they dated. Like you can you can you know you can do one and one makes two math on that. That's not super hard, but you don't understand that you know like homeboy is actually probably Frankie's father and jumped and beat the living hell out of, um, out of Dean, you know? And so it's like, okay, now when you get these, all these pieces, you know, puzzle pieces later, it's like, okay, well now I understand why he was so upset. Um, you know, and the fact that, you know, she did light up like a, like a Christmas tree, even though, you know, homeboy was like a straight douche canoe, like she shouldn't have, but she's so, unhappy and disenfranchised in this relationship that she's currently in that this guy who you know treated her also very poorly in college she's like oh this guy has an interest in me and so she immediately just lights up like you said and i wonder you know you know when she sees him i wonder if that has something to do with uh the ambition like you you know like you pointed out because you know i think back to the scene where they're having dinner uh, for the first time with uh, Cindy's family and you know they're they're grilling Dean <laughs> about his you know his history and his family and you know at that point in time and now that I keep now that I continue to talk about this I, I definitely think I'm firmly on Cindy's side here uh, but you know they're grilling him and you find out that she wants to be a doctor and Dean uh, Cindy's father is asking Dean about his history and he says that he hasn't graduated from high school, <laughs> but you know, this is, and, and I, and you know, maybe at that point in time, you know, as a parent, you know, I'm not a parent, but maybe at, at, as a parent, you maybe at that age, you can't tell your children what to do, but you can just see. And from my perspective, like these are like red flags that, you know, when you have someone, you know, who wants to be a doctor and you have someone like the Dean who almost, uh, who has this vibe that, you know, you know, this is not my thing, but you know what, it's going to work out. Cause you know, you know, life, you know, we'll just, and, and he's someone who's just ready to just, and, you know, take life as it comes. Whereas, you know, she's ready to kind of, you know, grab the bull by the horns and, and, and take more charge of her life. So I I'd often, I do wonder if, you know, like her interactions with um, Bobby, uh, Bobby Ontario, her ex-boyfriend, and even that doctor, at the office that she works with. You know what I mean? She kind of has a, some similar, uh, seems like she has a similar response when he's discussing it with her too. If that, if that has something more to do with like her just missing 
that ambition that she desires in a partner because it was probably something that she wasn't aware of. And I think that's like one of the beauties of this film is that it dim it shows the way in which like just the, the love and early passion just like overrides all um, common sense. <laughs> yeah. Well said, you know, early on in relationships and um, you see that, but then it, you know, by the time you, are able to take a step back and actually think about, you know what I mean, what you really want out of a relationship, you know, it's too late. She's got Frankie. They've been in a relationship for, you know, probably five, 10 years or years or more. And she's almost in a position where, you know, uh, leaving Dean and going to med school, obviously that's, that's out of the picture. And so uh, I, that's probably one of the things that number one, heighten the tensions between the two of them, but also, uh, prompted those responses, you know, when she did encounter, you know what I mean? Those, you know, those two men throughout her, um, as, as she went about her, uh, her life within the film. Yeah. The relationship between Dean and the father, that's another aspect where I think when he first, they first like are around each other, like Dean's trying to stay back by the car smoking. He's like, Oh, I can't get up there. He has the oxygen or whatever. And later off it's paid off with the friction they have the first time they met each mm -hmm. other. Um, Gosh, can you imagine being a mover? That'd be some back-breaking labor. Have you guys ever had any labor-intensive jobs? Uh, the most I, I I grew up being a pressure washer with my dad. He um, he had a pressure washing business, and so I yeah, I know full well what it's like to come home completely covered in dirt and grime, and um, you know, it's 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 not pleasant compared to being able to sit in an office and you know get a pretty decent you know money and you know not have to. Uh, you know, be out there in the heat and sweat. Um, how about you all? So I think the most like, like actual job that I actually worked was when, when I lived in Beaufort, I worked um, in the warehouse for the ISP down there. But you know, it, it, I was in like receiving and it was, uh, even though it was a big internet service provider, it was like a local one, but it, you know, it wasn't like spectrum or anything like that. Um, but for the most part, anything like it was like heavy lifting was generally with a forklift or anything like that. So, you know, it wasn't like crazy. But when I came back to Florence, you know, I started looking for jobs and, you know, I was like, oh, I worked in a warehouse. I'll, I'll get a warehouse job. And, you know, so I, I got a, a job at this warehouse and it didn't have air and it was just loading boxes. And by the like by the lunch of that, the, the only day that I worked, like I was like, I can't I can't even move. Like I couldn't even mm. move anymore. And so like the, the next day came and I'm like on the couch and it's like, well, my shift's in 30 minutes and I can't even get up to go take a shower. Well, I guess I'm not going. And they never even called. I guess they just, it wasn't uncommon for people to just, I was like, yep, no. And it was like $8 an hour. And it was like, this is not worth me dying, like killing myself for. So I just never went back. Wow. Yeah. I was going, I was going to point out that, um, you know, I worked at a, uh, golf course for about for uh for a season uh you know uh, years ago and it was pretty intense work uh you know we were normally there uh at between 5 30 6 in the morning uh because you know this was spring summer leading in the fall and so you know sun would be up pretty early so we'd, we'd be out there cutting the fairways cutting the greens and performing other labor uh around the uh around the course uh, but I actually enjoyed that and because that kind of got me into the game of golf and, uh, you know, I still play like even today. And I think 
like working there kind of developed an appreciation for what goes into, you know what I mean, making that. But uh, to your point, Joey, I when I was younger, I worked at in a Papa John's warehouse where they made the dough. And I was in the freezer where at, so after the dough was was prepared, they place them in these these like um, they don't they they're uh, they kind of look like, like milk crates, but just a little bit flatter. And, you know, you could stack them on top of each other and all the dough would go in there. And so after it was, it, it, you know, it, it was made and they, they did all the stuff they did on the on the outside, it would come on this conveyor belt into the freezer. And we were, me and like a couple other guys were tasked with like taking those uh, crates and then stacking them on top of each other. And then, you know, once they got to about maybe like 10 to 15 feet in the air, like you, they, they were on these, um, can't think of the term, but they were on these, uh, these like platforms and we'd be able to roll them all the way down to the other side of this warehouse and stack them up. And we'd be doing that for like eight to nine hours a day. So if you could imagine like a warehouse, the size of maybe like, let's say it's about 75 yards and we're just like stacking dough all day long as it's coming off this conveyor belt hour after hour after hour and you know your point about being so physically exhausted that you couldn't get up the next day that act, it actually made me think about that job because i remember coming home after the first day and it was okay and then by the second day i was so t beat down by this job i didn't i didn't know how i was going to be able to get up to go back to them on the third day and you know like i said on top of that you're in the freezer where it's it it's it like maybe like 10 to 15 degrees. So we're bundled up and this is in like the summertime as well. So you're coming out outside from where it's completely, you know, extremely sunny to this freezer where, you know, the temperature drops by 70 to 80 degrees. And, you know, imagine it just being in there for eight, nine hours a day. It was just, it was brutal. And uh, I would never ever do anything like that again. So I'd rather move. I'd rather, I'd rather do what Dean is doing. Um, all I know is I hate moving. I did it like three times in one year. Um, and going, moving out of the third floor, that third floor apartment was horrible. And I, I would not want to have to do that professionally. That was, boy, that was rough. Um, probably, you know, also moving out of an, uh, moving out of an apartment, someone you just broke up with and like, you're both trying to move out at the same time, probably didn't help to that, but you know, like just still the physical aspect of it was, was pretty bad. So even if you could have the, um, the philosophical conversations that Dean was having about love and relationships and eventually meet your soulmate, that's, it still wouldn't be worth it for you. <laughs> I mean, was that his soulmate? Like, your soulmate's <laughs> who you're supposed to be end up being with. Like, well, I guess he thought it was um, his soulmate, and I guess in his old, his his own words, you know, he felt that you know he was he felt that men were more romantic than women, and that he was when he got married, you know, he was going to be that was going to be the one. So I, I guess he, maybe he had the idea, <laughs> I guess that that was going to be his soulmate, but you know, obviously, you know, it didn't work out that way. I mean, I mean, there's that, the, the, the as Justin liked to put it, since I got like a big romantic over here, you know, like that, that's pretty enticing. Um, 
but you know, maybe, maybe, maybe if I was like a young buck like him, um, mm -hmm. not, not Nick and Jack or Nick and Matt Jackson, young bucks, but just a young buck. Um, maybe so, but, uh, at 35, nah, I'm, I, I don't, I don't think I need to be like balancing stuff on my back and carrying up and down flights of stairs. I will, uh, I will pass on, uh, pass on that. I'm, I'm good. <laughs> Really enjoyed that tender moment where he did take a few minutes to decorate, decorate that old guy's room and even stood a few minutes later to kind of point out where exactly everything in the room he, he set up was. Um, I thought that said a lot about his character. Absolutely. And, and, you know, and the same for her as she was taking care of, I believe, her grandmother. Mm -hmm. um, That's a good point. It, it definitely demonstrated uh, a, a tenderness. You know, the, the, it showed that they were both very patient people. And, you know, they were demonstrating love, like it was love in action. So, you know, that they had the capacity to love, to to be patient for others. And, and you would think with each other. But mm -hmm. for some reason, those they, they didn't bring those those attributes and and and, uh, and, and excuse me, into the relationship. And that was that was something that always boggled my mind is that, you know, I like, how do, how do two people get to a point where they can't, they can't, you know, be these people that we're seeing on screen to each other. You know what I mean? Because there's only, you know, no one, no one individual is, is the villain and they definitely have uh, some positive uh, traits, but for, for whatever reason, they couldn't, you know, utilize them to their own benefit, you know, for, you know, for the, to, to help their relationship last. So while I, I kind of feel like I'm, I'm on team Dean, um, the whole going to the, the sex motel. Yeah, that was, that was a bad move. You don't, you don't do mm -hmm. that. Even if you want to patch things up, you, you gotta be a little classier than that. But yeah, he kind of wants to take the simple route. Um, but I love how it's the future room and how like the whole room has like these blue and purple colors, which really play mm -hmm. into the title. Um, really, really well. Much deeper uh, blue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, to, to Joey's point, you know what I mean? If you're, you know, you know, blue is a, is a downer. And I guess if there was any, if there was a low point in the relationship, aside from Dean uh, entering uh, Cindy's workspace and assaulting her boss, uh, it was probably that's that, that's the, or, you know, that scene. Uh, within the uh, the future room, given you know just the change in the color scheme and the the fact that you could see that you know any love and any passion that they had for each other, it's it's pretty much gone at this point. Although there was the mixtape, and the mixtape is one of the high points of their relationship. And when he pulls out the mixtape and they have a little dance, um, I, mm. that was that was a good moment. Um, mm -hmm. um, man, this sex scene it it's very interesting. Um, I really like how you mentioned the fact that uh, how how nurturing Cindy is, especially for how she likes to take care of the elderly. And there's a there, there's the moment where Dean just kind of laying on the floor, and it's almost like he has manipulated her to come and like go and check on him, go and care for him. And then that's when like the, the whole sex scene takes place. And yeah, she's a very complicated girl. Um, I remember later on before the um, the abortion. Aren't they talking about like how many sexual partners she's had? And mm -hmm. I never expected her to say 20. And that's like, whoa, 20? Mm -hmm. Really? I mean, I mm -hmm. hate to judge, you know, a young uh, woman for, you know, you know, however they live their life. But there's a much deeper sexual aspect to her that 
and so much about her is 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 not revealed. I mean, there's that the dirty joke um, when they're on the bus together, and she like jokes about a pedophile, and it's just like, whoa, where did that come from? But yeah, she's she's so much more complicated. And like I said earlier, like how Dean he has the heart on his um, wrist. He you know he's very open book, whereas she's more reserved, which you know makes for a more complicated relationship. Well, and I I honestly I think most of the time, you know. Like, I feel like most of the time to me that men are usually when it comes to the, that that one person, that one woman that they care about, their their heart is more on their sleeve. You know, most you know, guys get the reputation that they just want to like sleep around and that they don't talk about their emotions. But like I listen to my, you know, when my when I see my friends talk about like their significant others, it's always or talking to them. It's it's always very open, but like generally I feel like women are a little bit more mysterious and, and, and enigmas. Um, not that, you know, you know, my relationships that, you know, they didn't talk about how they felt and whatnot, but it's just, you know, like me personally, I would just like, this is, this is one, two, three and one, two, three means one, two, three. There's no reading between the lines. There's no, it, it, it is what it is. And then, you know, like, I, I feel like women sometimes maybe there is some more mystery. There's, I'm not saying I don't think what I mean. That's probably coming out right, wrong. <laughs> no, um, I, I've been married a long time. I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> um, and and it's just like, uh, and I don't even necessarily think it comes from like a place of malice or you know anything of that nature. It's just um, because of like we all go to like Mean Girls, Girl World. You can't say what you mean. You have to fight dirty you have to say this thing is very passive aggressive and so if they're all their relationships have been passive aggressive even if this person you've been with for 5 10 12 years uh whatever it may be you 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 can't always cut off that i have to be passive aggressive or i i can't show i take down this armor whatever way you want to phrase it you have to just say one thing and it's like well they'll figure it out it's like well no men are we're we're dumb <laughs> Like, we dumb. We tell us, please tell us one, two, three. That's what it is. One plus one equals two. That's it. That's that's what we can do. We can eat a sandwich and we can do one plus one equals two. <laughs> when it comes to relationships, <laughs> specify. But so it was a little bit uh, not quite what I had in mind to say there when I was trying to say that, you know, I agree that she's a kind of an enigma. But OK, we, we got there ish. And we God all know, and anybody who's listening to the show, we all know that Joey's already basic. So there you go. Yo, yeah, I'm basic. Any, yes, I'm, I'm, apple cider, pumpkin spice latte. I don't have Uggs, but <laughs> guy Uggs. Well, I did have uh, a, a girlfriend who said she was gonna buy me some Uggs, and I was just, but you know, she gave me a lot of, of all, all gave me a lot of ish all the time for liking pumpkin spice lattes. So. I don't like really any other kind of coffee. Pumpkin spice lattes, yes. All day, every day. I do not drink White Claw. That shit is disgusting. I'll just uh, <laughs> throw that out there, too, before anybody wants to come in with that. No. <laughs> oh, what a telling moment whenever she's talking to her grandma about love, and, and basically her grandma's just like, yeah, I've never had that that moment. <laughs> Very telling. Okay. And um, Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say, uh, I, I think one of the, this is just my favorite 
scene. Like, uh, it was kind of a, a telling moment to me where, um, to, to segue that is, you know, she said she's never had that moment, but you see the scene where um, Dean is playing the ukulele and, you know, she's, she's dancing and it's like, I guess their first date, but you, you can just see like how, how their faces and how they look at each other. And I just really love that scene. But, you know, I think, um, because as you like to point out, I'm a hopeless romantic and apparently basic has something to do with that. So thanks. Um, I love the red but, uh, heart in the background in that scene and how they're in front of a dress shop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does look yeah. like, you know what I mean? It's kind of forecasting mm-hmm. uh, the fact that they'll eventually tie the knot. Yeah, that I mean, yeah, there's just every, everything about that scene. It's just, it's, it's real tender and it's sweet. And, you know, he's like, I have to sing like an idiot to sound good. And then he's like, oh, well, you sound really amazing. And it's like, <laughs> yep, it, only, it, only a guy trying to impress a girl would try to sing, you know, sing like that and sound that stupid. And only a girl who's really into that guy would, you know, be... Yeah, no, you don't sound dumb at all. And it's like, <laughs> so it's like, no, I just thought it was really awesome. And then, you know, it's like, I've never had that uh, falling in love moment. And it, like, like, I bet you, you know, like, if that was a real life situation, that would be the, oh, yeah, this is the moment I knew I maybe not had fallen in love, but I knew I was falling in love. It's like when you were playing that stupid ukulele in front of the dress shop. <laughs> so. It's awfully telling that the fact that um, his parents, what got he was from a divorced family, but she was from a loveless um, marriage um, um, parents. So definitely speaks a lot about the, the differences of how they see things. So how do you think that influenced their interactions with each other and the eventual outcome? Because he seemed like someone who was trying to hold on uh, in spite of uh, the obvious signs that she was ready to check out of this relationship, I, I think it was I think it was you, Joey, who mentioned that he just he just couldn't read the room. Yeah. But in her case, um, maybe uh, you know, you know her 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 family they were together, but they were they were a bit loveless, and it seemed like she wasn't willing to accept that anymore. Uh, and, you know, she was, you know, seeking a change. Yeah. So maybe, maybe she was willing to like be loveless if he was ambitious or mm-hmm. like, cause you talk about, because, you know, if, if he was ambitious and was bringing in more money and, you know, then thus she could go to school or they could have a better life. She could mm-hmm. be in the loveless marriage, or maybe she was really un unused to the fact that, you know, he, he was still trying to show affection. Maybe he was showing it in the wrong way, but he was still mm-hmm. trying to show it versus, you know, if he's from a divorced family, you know, like, you know, most people, if you grow up watching, if you're from a divorced family, you grow up watching your parents fight. So he's trying mm-hmm. to fight, you know, even if he's trying to fight for the marriage, he's still trying to fight. And she's, you know, so it's two very, like you said, conflicting, conflicting things. I mean, I grew up watching, I was very little, but I mean, one of my earliest memories is my mother and my father fighting. And then I grew up watching my father and my stepmother fight, you know, for years. Um, whereas, you know, I, 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 I honestly think I, I can never remember seeing my, my mother and my stepfather fight, even when they almost got divorced. I don't ever remember 
seeing them have a fight in front of me. Um, hmm. Which is very odd considering it was my mother who fought in front of my father. But, you know, they were they were 17 and like 20 versus, you know, my mom being, you know, at that point almost 30. But, hmm. you know, it was, a, it was a much bigger, well, no, it was older than that because I was six. It was a much, you know, much different thing as he was grown. But, um, you know... So maybe it's just, you know, perspectives of how they had seen, you know, their parents and that's, that's their example. So that's the example of what they think life and marriage and things should be. So that's, you know, you, you learn from example most of the time and that's their examples. Mm, that's, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's a great point because you've got that, but then I'm sure they have these romantic notions uh, <laughs> and I'm sure they have those two that's that's what's guiding them but there's nothing there's nothing there to like to really sustain like and and, and help them build a a sound and you know positive uplifting edifying whatever whatever however, whatever your words your terms you want to use relationship yeah you know having you know that example from the family and then having this early experience of being madly in love uh and then just watching it um morph into um, a, a, a replica <laughs> of, you know, what your parents produced is probably, is probably the toughest thing, for, you know, for them to, 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 to probably deal with. Did you have a favorite moment in the movie, Adam? <sighs> Mine um, would be that, that shot where Dean's sitting on the bench, kind of looking out into the water and there's the bridge. It's really grainy. And he has the quote that I think I've seen too many movies when referring to like his view on love, I think that one, I like that one mm. the most. You know what? Um, now that I think really about good. it. Mm -hmm. uh, now I think about it. I think the early scenes when you know he first joined the moving company and he's having, uh, you know, the, these very open conversations with his uh, one of his coworkers just about mm -hmm. love in general, and you know they. They're talking about pretty much everything under the sun, but you, you can tell that Dean has some very, you know, deep and heartfelt thoughts about it. And I, it's just that that's the toughest thing to watch, uh, you know, because we all, you know, have these ideas of what love is, you know, and, and the most the, the toughest thing I would imagine about any relationship is spending the first, I don't know, like 18 20 or more years of your life building up these ideas of what it should be. And then you think of it like maybe from a woman's perspective, you know, they're probably thinking of their Prince Charming and their wedding, but then like, you know, but we don't spend the same amount of time thinking about the actual work. Like I said, I keep going back to the work, the actual work that goes into the relationship and I often wonder if, you know, Dean was thinking of it in those terms, if he would have been able to meet Cindy's needs. Uh, because I, I do think that's one of the factors that led to their, um, uh, their, 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 the disillusion of their relationship. But yeah, that, th those moments were great because like I said, you really got to see who they were before the relationship kind of removed all of the tenderness and all of the positive as aspects, not just about their relationship, but, but, but about them in general from them. It is just life had just, had just beat them down by the time, you know what I mean? where uh, uh, by the time the film begins and uh, 
we, we get to see them in their current form. I think uh, the abortion scene, that that was pretty unique for this film to actually, you know, they start showing the procedure of an abortion and then suddenly, she, you know, she wants out of it. She's had a change of heart. Um, that's pretty mm-hmm. unusual from what I've seen in films. Usually, you know, either they, you know, the female gets out, you know, before they even start or um, goes through with it. So that was interesting to see her have a change of heart. And I think one of the, the, the scenes I did tear up in was whenever her and um, Dean embrace after she made that decision. Um, do you think she trapped him with the, the pregnancy? I don't, I don't think she trapped him because, you know, they had the scene on the bridge and she tells him that she's pregnant. Which the one time that Dean does read the room, right? <laughs> yeah, the one time he reads the room, but then he manipulates the living shit out of her to tell. She doesn't want to say anything. And he's like, I'm going to jump off the bridge. And he manipulates the living hell out of her. Um, so she tells him and he's like, well, is it mine? And she's like, probably not. Most likely not. So. And then even when he goes to get in the fight and Bobby Ontario's like hits him, he's like, well, your kid's going to be calling me daddy. So like, I don't think she traps him. He knows it's not her kid or he, he knows it's not his kid. And he's like, Hey, I love you. Like, let's just be a family. So like, he's, you know, this young kid and he's in love and he's in love with this woman or this young girl. And she's going through a very hard time and he wants to, you know, do what he thinks is right because he's seen one too many movies apparently. And, um, <laughs> so he, uh, you know, he, he thinks he's doing the right thing. He's going to, you know, help this girl that he loves. He's going to be there for, her. he's going to, you know, raise this kid as his own. Um, I do really like that, that, that was on the bus and they're, you know, they're embracing and you go back to where they, they had one of their first encounters, which was also on the bus. And, uh, he had went to go see the old man and take him, take him this locket, which was really just a, a, an excuse to go see her anyway and then you know old man's unfortunately passed away grandma had you know she wasn't there visiting grandma so he's on the bus and like i just thought it was you know really interesting and he's sitting on the bus and he sees her and you can they they portray his nervousness and you know he's got to like kind of like psych himself up to go talk to her and you know you're sitting there going like well ryan gosling ain't gotta like psych himself up to go talk to no chick he's ryan freaking gosling it's like okay (laughs) um he's obviously it's not ryan gosling doing this but uh um you know, he goes over and he sits down next to her and, um, you know, he, he kind of, he, he, then he fumbles right out the gate. He was like, well, I went and saw your grandma today. And it's like, all right, well, that sounds like that. That's, that's, that's a stalker. That's a move. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's a real stalker. And then, you know, he explains it and then he, he starts talking about, I don't remember how, but he, he's like backhanded complimenting her, but not in like the way that like, you, you see like a douchebag in a movie backhand a compliment like a girl to like get her to like him in like a bar or something he's just kind of talking and then uh he you know basically says she's not funny and she's like well how do you know that and he's like well i don't tell me a joke and that leads into what justin was talking about with the with the joke with the pedophile earlier and then he's like you know so that's kind of where their relationship sprang out from that you know led to them kind of spending that day together and then now here they are coming out of this abortion clinic and he's like, I love you. Let's be a family. And so it's, you know, kind of all on this bus. And they, they did a lot of that um, where they kind of like mirrored stuff. And I, I really, really like that. Uh, 
I think it's pretty shitty that she doesn't wake him up whenever she gets called into work. It's definitely his fault for even going up to the the motel or whatever, knowing she's on call. But yeah, that was that was kind of that was a little bit of a betrayal. Um, it definitely fueled him being really pissed off and him having a drink and going to her place of work. I love that quote. Um, this is where all the smiles happen because he's used to her being gloomy and feeling trapped in the relationship at home. And, you know, she puts on a nice face for, you know, her work environment. And this is the, the pivotal scene that worked best for me because you have the uncomfortableness of this encounter happening in a workplace where they've kind of locked themselves in this office and are just really having it out. And then you have the doctor come into equation and he slugs them because he can tell that like there's something going on between them. And so I thought for me, that was the emotional high point. So I felt very strange when there's another emotional high point a little bit later in her parents' kitchen. And for some reason, this moment felt really phony to me. And this was the biggest like drawback for me. For some reason, I just was not buying into this follow-up argument. Um... Am I totally off base? <laughs> I mean, I mean, he he did the same thing. She she walked into the the kitchen and he follows her in and traps her. So I mean, like they now they gotta have like the conversation. So I mean, I guess you know, like you look at it, they had the big blow up fight. He she goes, I want to have the divorce. They probably sat in silence in the car, and then they get there, they lock her dad out and now they're just having like, the conversation in the kitchen kind of deal. Um, because like, no, it's not just one conversation. Usually it's multiple conversations. It's not just like, Oh, I want this to be over. Well, the other person isn't usually just going to be like, Oh, well it's okay. It's over there. No, no, it's never over. Or, no, I don't, they, they just don't accept it. It's usually some sort of conversation making their final pitch. or And I think they're a little uh, bit more weepy in that moment. Maybe that's what kind of struck me the wrong way, where the, uh, we're in the office there, it's, it's more anger-filled. Well, I mean, the, the, the anger, I mean, at that, that, that point, is, it's, I guess it's the sadness of realizing what is gone, what is lost, what's, what's going to, you know, because he says that, you know, when they're in the sex motel and she's like, you could do anything you want. You could, you know, you can paint, you can sing, et cetera, et cetera. And he's like, well, I... I I have a job where I can drink at eight o'clock in the morning and I paint and then I come home and it's like, I didn't want to be anybody's husband. I didn't want to be anybody's father, but I, I love you and I love her. And this is what I want to do. And now, so, you know, he was happy at least at one point in time with that. And now like, this is going to end the woman that he loves is gone. Um, whatever kind of relationship with his child is going to be altered. Um, and, and, you know, he, he's going to be saddened by this. And, you know, even she, maybe, you know, she's not in love with him, but you know, like you've been with Christina for a very long time, um, but like twenty years. Yeah, so you you may not get this sentiment. I don't know about you, Adam, but like, so, like I have multiple exes. One of them is the mother of my child. One of them I, who I've mentioned multiple times, even tonight. Um, like, where we've broken up, I don't. I'm not in love with them, but they. I still love them. They're a very important part of my life. They meant a lot to me at one point in time. So you know, I don't wish anything ill upon them you know if there was something within reason well, obviously my baby mama's different story because she raises my child but you know um you know but there's a reason I, mean, I, I can help them in some way i probably would um but you know because there's always going to be that emotion there so even though she is not, not in love with him she probably obviously still cares for him because he's she he is a good father like you can see that and he 
was good to her at one point and he took a giant risk. He didn't have to do that. He That wasn't his kid. Or it's very heavily implied that it's not his kid. He could have just mm-hmm. been like, all right, peace. Like, would never would have thought he was a bad guy for it, you know? Or maybe and, not. You know, he, he didn't want to leave uh, her without some sort of, like, provider. And he didn't want Frankie to be fatherless. But I, I guess... I don't know how to ask this, but I, I guess, did he, in that situation, did he do, do you think he did the right thing by deciding to stick around? or And, and did he do it because she was pregnant or simply because he wanted to be with her? I mean, he, he definitely feels like he was in love with her and he wanted to be with her, so, but, you know. It's also so early on, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's like I mean, right after having those butterflies and being like, oh, I love this person. But now you have to commit because there's a baby. That's where I came. Yeah. That's where I was kind of coming from with the trap thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, like, well, when you say, like, did she trap him? Like, that makes it feel like she did it maliciously. Like, mm-hmm. maybe maybe he did feel trapped, but not because she she did it maliciously. Like, right. Like, I agree with that. Like, the, the trapping would have been if she knew it was bobby's and was like no it's yours that that would have been trapping him and then that is a different thing but where she's like no it's most likely not yours it's probably not yours that's um you know you know where where at least to me like i didn't maybe and maybe i misinterpreted that but i definitely felt like you know she she was honest about that it's a complicated movie a lot lot of ways to feel about a lot of stuff with motivations um, and, and that's the thing, actually, I think that's really good about this movie is unlike, you know, uh, say something like Sabrina, which we watched very recently, or, you know, a, a lot of your traditional rom-coms or rom-dramas where, you know, everything gets tied up nice and neat with a bow at the end and you feel all happy and, oh, the guy gets the girl and they live happily ever after. Like, this is this is messy. This is very messy. Um, and it, it's very much more indicative of real life, um, of Oh, yeah. Things don't always end perfectly. Marriages crumble. Um, and that's in and of itself is very sad and very depressing. I get in, in this movie is like you sit down and watch this and you're like, well, crap. Um, <laughs> all right, then. <laughs> so. Uh, a couple final notes, I would say. Um, I really enjoyed the scene where, you know, he throws the ring and then he rushes and goes looking back after it. Um and then the editing with with how they show like their justice of the peace marriage there intertwined intertwined with the breakup and then you know your heartstrings really getting pulled whenever the the little girl's running after him there at the end. Um, so, any final thoughts, fellas? Take, <laughs> uh, when I, I I feel like this is a, a great film to watch. Like with your your child as they're as they're coming of age, to mm, <laughs> to yeah. be able to really understand like the 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 complexities of uh, of of just any relationship, let alone a long term relationship, because they're just like you know we were discussing with Nightcrawler. There are certain ways in which our media companies feed us certain information about the way the world works. And uh, whether it be politics or whether it be romance, 
I, I think that, you know, they're different subjects altogether, but there's still a narrative, you know, in, 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 in the entertainment industry, the people still want to uh, create a narrative out of these ideas. And for the most part, you know, you, you want to put forth a narrative that will um, appeal to a large amount of people and that will make them feel comfort them and make them feel happy about about life and their position in it. And so we get these stories told to us especially as it relates to love, that all, all that it takes is, you know, that that initial passion and, you know, maybe some physical attraction in that, you know, if you just, if you if, if you have that, things, you know, will work out. But, you know, the, life is just, it's not, I don't want to use messy because messy just seems like I'm just more of a negative um, term, but... It, there's just some complications that this film, you know, in life and love that this film touches on that I think is just, just wonderful and, and really would get the wheels turning for any individual and, you know, especially younger kids as, because the, the entire reason, from my perspective, the, the entire reason why Dean and Cindy end up in the, in the, in the, uh, situation that they, they end up in, in the, you know, at the end of the film is simply because it feels like, no one has come along to rebut some of the ideas that they had about how love actually works and how relationships are formed, how they're built upon and how they, uh, and how they last over the long term. And I, I, like I said, I I just think that this, you know, you can, the rom-coms, the rom-dramas, they work well, but like, I, I do think that this film needs to be thrown in there as more of a, a, uh, a truth bomb <laughs> to, to a degree um, to kind of say. I mean, you, you almost could, you could almost actually, like they said, they wanted to film this in two halves. You could almost make this two movies. You could make the first half when they were kids, mm. make this like a, rom, a, a romantic comedy and they get to the point where they get married and that, that movie ends because that story ends. And that's where a lot of romantic comedies and drama ends is when the guy gets the girl or they get married and, that's where that story ends, but you never you never see the like the, the after because they live happily ever after. But what is happily ever after? What do they have to do to get there? Especially in a lot of the older movies, it's you know the guy he's been just been chasing the girl, or you know she was a damsel in distress, or you know whatever the case may be. But then in you know in this situation, you know you you see we we don't see everything. We don't see like the three or four years in between where you know she finished being pregnant and they have they have Frankie, but you see they picked them they pinpointed a specific point in time and now it's not happily ever after and and it's like it's a completely and and they, like i said they did a very good job of mirroring that and it's like it could have probably almost been two movies if they had wanted it to be um have you guys seen the before trilogy yes uh no oh you, you got to see that joey that's that put that on your watch list <laughs> Because it, 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 yeah, it, uh, it's Richard Linklater, and he splits this relationship into the different sections of their lives. So, um, I'm going to be watching yeah, a movie by him very str- soon, actually. Str- uh, strong recommend on that. Okay. Uh, All right. right. Um, I was split between a four and a four and a half on this, but I think um, you guys sold me on four and a half. Um, I don't think I really appreciated um, the ambiguity in Cindy's um, mindset quite as much the first time just because I was felt so emotionally pulled to Dean. Um, so yeah, I really appreciate having this conversation with y'all to um, 
kind of flesh out some more ideas on this one. Both of them, really. Oh, yeah. This, I think, was actually one of our, our better conversations on both movies. Like, there's, there was not a part where uh, I wanted to, like, kill you um, for uh, <laughs> how much we disagreed on something. It was kind of, it was kind of, which actually this year, this season has been much better about that, with the exception, I think, of, like, two movies. Uh, Joey hasn't been a fan of uh, Lars von Trier thus far. Oh, wow. What, what von Trier films have you watched? We so talked many to... years ago. Okay, well, go many ahead. years ago, before like I was really doing anything, I was just watching movies because I like movies, and uh, I watched um, *Nymphomaniac* Part One randomly mm -hmm. on uh, Netflix, um, and I, for the most part, enjoyed that movie. Um, I couldn't really tell you anything about it now because it's been many years. I just remember that I was like, okay, I'm gonna watch Part Two, and then never watch Part Two. And then um, we have done two movies for the podcast that were part uh, Von Trier. Um, we did *Dogville* in season one. And my letterbox review was uh, prologue, vomit emoji, uh, scene one, vomit emoji, scene two, vomit emoji, uh, all the way until the final part when I was like, oh, well, homeboy showed up and started a bunch of gangsters doing a bunch of gangster shit. All right, uh, now, we, now we actually have something. Um, and then oh, we got to season two, and Justin, uh, for episode one, where it was musicals, um, Pick Dancer in the Dark, and um, I'm I'm still recovering from the last 20 minutes of that movie that did not need to be shown. Um, but yeah, no. I've already had um, this argument. <laughs> oh yes, no. But you you brought it up, fam. Yeah. So uh, no, I just don't think that me and me and him uh me and him click. I will say that I liked the premise of Dogville, like how it was like on a stage and everything. But after like the 800th time they raped Nicole Kidman, I was like, okay, I'm, I, I'm, yeah. I just, all right, cool. Um, I'm, I'm over this. Mm. So what were your ra y'all's ratings on, um, uh, Blue Valentine? Or, uh, well, right now it's sitting at a three and a half on Letterboxd, but I, I feel like I just, I should just go ahead and give it the extra half star. Uh, it, it's a firm four for me. I could watch this film over and over again and i'm sure that uh you know my next relationship uh you know i'll be able to gain some new insights about you know, about love and about life and you know what i mean you'll be referencing this film and you know maybe my next girlfriend wife whatever will be will watch this film and it'll probably hopefully it won't be a sign of things to come, but <laughs> it'll be yeah, you know, experience we can share together and then, you know, kind of uh, discuss some of the themes uh, that, that are contained within it. But it's something I, I say all that just to say that it's something that I'm going to revisit. And typically if it's four for me, if it's four stars or more, it's, it's, it's a solid piece. So I think I'm just being, I, I should just go ahead and update it right now. Actually, I'll say four. Nice. Um, I definitely think I would watch this movie again. I don't know if I could watch it over and over, but I definitely really enjoyed it. And uh, I would, it would probably be one of the ones, like if I ran across it in like some sort of steel book, I would definitely want to add it to my collection um, mm. because I'm definitely not a steel book whore. Um, but uh, I definitely think this year, uh, after last year, like I, I, like, I don't know. I went through this phase where when I was giving out ratings, like I felt, I, I don't know. I, I almost felt like I needed to be snobby and like, like super critical of movies. And I was like, you know what? I, I, I just kind of changed that. 
I absolutely love this movie and I adored it. And I think everything that it wanted to do, it did it and it did it very well. And like it did its editing well. The acting was great. So like it's, I, I'm just going to, just, it's five stars. Like I don't think necessarily that, uh, I'm not one of the people who thinks five stars means it has to be an all time classic. I, I think that it's five stars because it did everything that it, it did really well. Um, mm. So like, is, is it going to hold up to something like we mentioned seven samurai or, you know, multiple Kurosawa's earlier? Uh, no, but it's not trying to do the same things. And I think what it tried to do, it accomplished very, very well. So five, five for me. <laughs> um, so awesome. Awesome. But the, oh. the, the, the actual miracle is that I gave the movie Justin picked five, uh, <laughs> four and a half stars. That's the, that's the, that's the miracle here. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, I appreciate your time so much, Adam, for uh, joining us on this conversation. It was very, very enriching. Um, you've been a great addition to the show. Anytime you ever feel compelled to come back, just let us know. Oh, yes, please do. It was very great talking with you and getting uh, getting to bounce movie movie talk off with you. Very, uh, very intuitive. All right, thank you. It's, uh, this is a lot of fun. I enjoyed diving into these films. And uh, please... Please, uh, you know, both of you guys. Joey, follow me on Letterboxd. I'll follow you back. We can stay in touch that way. And um, uh, if there's anything else that comes up that you guys want to discuss, uh, I'm all for it. And uh, before we go, uh, you mentioned that you're a steelbook whore. Uh, uh, Are you referring to, like, companies like Plain Archive and um, some of the other uh, companies that, you know, distribute these these really uh, detailed and over-the-top box sets? Um, I don't have any movies in here with me, but uh, more like... I mean, I do have some big box sets in my... Uh, in my bed, or my... out on my shelf. When I said still books, I meant more like this. Just yeah. like the, the metal cases. I guess you can see. Let me put it where I can actually see my camera. There is we go. A, yeah, more like that, this. Is that a video okay. game? Yes, this is a video game. I'm in my bedroom, mm. so that's where my video games are. I'm on my Blu-rays are in the on the shelf in the living room. But um, yes, so um, I have lots of steelbook cases. You know, like Best Buy exclusive steelbook, 4K, Blu-ray, whatever. Mm. Um, so I have a lot of those. I do have uh, a couple of bigger box sets. Um, some from Arrow. I've got one. What the I not Shout Factory. I don't remember where I ordered that Kill Bill one from, but that one doesn't have a steelbook in it. I have those on steelbook anyway. Um, <laughs> I own Kill Bill like four times. It's it's a I don't have a problem. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just brought that up because it's a because there's a great company. I think they're based out of um, South Korea. And here I'm gonna send you a link here. It's called Plain Archive. And they make some awesome steel books. So I hate to um, put another dent into your pocketbook, <laughs> but um, you may want to check them out. Awesome, awesome. All right, before we do in, in the show, let's do a little bit of housekeeping. Um, so we our episode coming up um, by process of elimination, it is going to be our streaming service original movies theme. So, um, Joey, uh, what did you uh, pick for a streaming service original for next week or next episode? All right. So this has uh, changed a little bit because uh, this movie did not exist when we originally picked this co- category. Um, but it's going to be The Old Guard uh, starring 
Charlie Theron. Oh, that's the Go the to. brand new one, right? Yeah, the brand new one. Um, it was a John Woo movie when I actually had the killer in in here. So I was gonna have I was gonna have like two John Woo movies, but uh, I, I switched it and uh, I picked I picked the old guard okay. uh, since it was a uh, figure maybe uh, you know get a a new new movie in here because we don't do that often. So. <laughs> Mine's pretty new as well. I picked a Netflix original, uh, Dolomite is My Name, uh, Eddie Murphy film from last year. Uh, yeah, I've been holding off on that one a little while to uh, finally check out on the show. So, um, yeah, looking forward to that. All right. I, I was I was like hoping you didn't pick this. And I was like, Justin, I usually don't pick action movies. So I was like, okay, I think... I didn't know where you, I didn't know where you were going to go. I honestly thought you were going to pick like Roma or like The Irishman. So I should I should have done that to make you watch The Irishman. I don't know how you're a Scorsese fan. You haven't watched The Irishman yet. What, what's going on with you? Wow, you whoa! What's going on with that? Okay, I'm gonna be real because some of us have to go out of the house to go to work. I'll also, I play video games. I play Magic the Gathering. Justin literally watches movies. That's all he does. That's it. I also try to watch movies with my roommate because he's also a huge cinephile. And so it's like, uh, yeah. So sometimes I can't just like sit that, or that is why sometimes Justin's like, why did you watch this really shitty movie? I'm like, well, I just wanted to watch a movie that kills a little bit of time and I didn't have to think about it. It's like, I could have watched four episodes of a TV show or I just watched this kind of man movie that was on netflix like whatever so <laughs> awesome awesome all right thanks so much everyone for uh, following the show if you want to join the movie club class make sure to hit subscribe hit that bell notification leave us a comment we'd love to hear from you and if you'd like to answer any questions on the show just send it to the average joe's movie Clubcast at gmail.com or please go to our facebook page there's a button that does it for you leave a comment there or if you're, you know, you follow us on Letterboxd, you can comment on our review. You can, if you're friends with us personally, you know, send us a message in whichever way you know how to contact us. Um, we'd love to uh, answer your questions, get any sort of feedback. Um, or maybe you can, you know, um, be like uh, Mr. Adam here and get on the show and actually talk with us. Because uh, this has been very refreshing and, and fun to have a, another voice to kind of, although this episode didn't really need it, but to kind of... Um, put some uh, some different perspective between mine and Justin's opinions. Yeah, for sure. Thanks again, Adam, for joining us. How's the best p- place for people to follow you? Oh, absolutely. It's Letterboxd. Uh, if you go to my other social profiles, uh, you'll see pretty much a blank page. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it's just letterboxd.com uh, slash Adam underscore Davey. And you can check me out from there. Awesome. Highly recommend it. He has it's a great, great page. All right, Justin, so why do we do this show? Because we love talking about movies. Good night, everybody.
Just my, my master.